So welcome to this new stage event where we have, as always, uh, great guests. We have Dave Shadoff and Grey Rogue. They both have a lot of work under the belts and also a lot of experience. And it's interesting that they both have been working uh, towards achieving better precision and uh, documentation around uh, the platforms that they love and which they have contributed to. So can you please introduce yourselves uh, tonight? We have a lot of stuff to cover and uh, it'll be my pleasure to be talking to you. Eric, you are also known as Grey Rogue. Could you please introduce yourse yourself to the audience? Uh, yeah, so uh, I go by Grey Rogue. It's a combination of two of my favorite things, which you can tell by my picture there. It's uh, Grey is reference to Grey Wanderer, and Rogue is the Rogue Squadron from <laughs> a little before the um, Rogue One movie. It's but uh, the Rogue Squadron. But anyway, combination of Lord of the Rings and Star Wars. So nice. And uh, we also have, as, as I mentioned, David Shadoff. Dave, could you please introduce yourself to the audience? Hi. Well, I'm Dave, and uh, and and uh, and I'm a little bit addicted to the PC Engine, <laughs> which is really good. <laughs> Uh, there's there's nothing wrong with that. The PC Engine is a, an, an awesome platform. So um, we're gonna get started as always by getting to you to know you a little bit better. And uh, I'm gonna ask you, uh, Dave, what got you into games? Games? You mean games in general? I mean, well, it could be games in general or video games, uh, whichever you feel fits better, because they are not disconnected. <laughs> Yeah, well, I mean, um, I think my first video game was probably, you know, those TV Pong systems. Uh, I, I'm a little bit older than probably most of the audience. But um, I, I think really what, um, what got me into trying to create something of any sort uh, was, uh, you know, one day I walked into a, uh, a Radio Shack and I saw, you know, one of these, these programs and basic uh, little cannon on top of a of a hill shooting a cannonball and i thought that's really cool and i'd already been into electronics a bit at that point uh, which was an extremely expensive hobby back then <laughs> for a kid at least um so i kind of switched over to uh to programming computers in the late 70s and uh well from there i mean the the, the whole the whole market evolved and switched uh, over the 80s and I, i'm sure we'll get a little bit more into that but that's that's my starting point nice and uh what about you eric what got you into video games or computers you know it, it's funny i was uh just thinking about the past couple of days that it actually i had a similar thing it was uh, a pong uh we had a, it was called a tv scoreboard which was just a other version of those pong one on a chip thingies mm -hmm. although i will say that the one that we had had a very satisfying set of buttons I think they're like the equivalent of like a uh, the IBM M keyboard, whatever that has a satisfying click. I love mm -hmm. the the buttons on that old TV scoreboard thing that we had. Um, but after that, um, uh, when the TI Texas Instrument ninety nine four A started to have problems and basically clearance them, my dad got one of those and a whole slew of games for him. So I have a particular soft spot for Arsec and Munchman and. Uh, TI Invaders and all the, the clones of all the popular arcade games they made on there. And, and, but also at the same time, I, I really enjoyed a lot of the educational titles that they had on that too. 
which, you know, um, I'm convinced that things like the uh, um, the math games that they had on there were super important just for flashing, the equivalent of flashcards, just um, repeated using of, of mem- um, memorizing those basic math things helps you later on. So I started with that. Yeah, that's th- those games are, are really interesting because we don't see such kind of thing as much in mainstream platforms as we did back then, right? Yeah, I, I give a particular shout out to Number Munchers. <laughs> I think that's relevant as relevant today as when I played it. I think it's a super fun game, and I think it's super helpful. The only the the main title that that recall from that kind of a genre in my infancy was Math Fun for Teen Television. But it's it's way way simpler. So um, we all have uh, we all saw uh, this uh, industry growing during the eighties. Which are the fondest memories of games back to that era, uh, Eric? Uh, fondest memories of that era? Yeah. Um, the, the one that jumps to mind is is maybe a little bit further down the line when we had a a PC and we had gotten my brother had bought. Um, the original X-Wing on, I don't know how many floppy disks that thing came on, but it was a bunch. And so the, I, I remember my brother bought it and was afraid that my dad would get, would get mad because he'd spent that much money on the game. So we installed it without telling him. And then my, my dad the next day thought he had a virus because he was missing 20 megabytes of his 200 megabyte hard drive. So that's kind of a fun memory. And then re- kind of related to that, um, at some point I started digging through the files in the game and just by randomly experimenting, replacing numbers in the mission files, I figured out how to swap the TIE Fighters for Star Destroyers, and that made the game a little more interesting. Did you break it along this, the way? It's funny. If, if, like on some of those early missions, if you put three Star Destroyers in the same location as three TIE Fighters, they're too close to each other, so they're trying to avoid hitting each other the whole time, and so you can shoot them without getting shot. So <laughs> actually made it easier. <laughs> nice. And what about you, Dave? Which kind of memories do you have from that era? Well, probably the the fondest memories I've got is kind of two of them, right? I mean, before I actually managed to purchase a computer, because they were very expensive back then, I I remember going, taking the bus and going downtown uh, to Toronto, because that's I, I live in that area, and uh, along the way, I I mean, I would go to the Radio Shack store to to see what you know what did they have and was there any any other people coming in that particular Saturday to to talk about what was going on and so on, but along the way, um, there were a number of arcades and uh, and you know you just can't help it but just walk into one of those and all the new games that were always coming out you know things like Pac Man and Galaxian Galaga Targ Spectar. Uh, all of these were, uh, they were like magic. And of course, at that moment, there weren't really any computers that had color. Mm-hmm. Um, so, but, but, but everybody wanted to see, yeah, I want to I have that game, but not have to spend 20 bucks. <laughs> <laughs> mm-hmm. I want to I write that on my, on my machine at home. And, uh, and actually, there were, uh, there were some really good games by a company called uh, Big Five Software out of Van Nuys, California, uh, for the Model 1. Um, those were really good. And uh, I guess probably the, the, the second uh, fond memory kind of parallel was, you know, there were a couple of really good games on the uh, the Radio Shack Color computer, which is my second computer. 
about two years later. And I think I, I remember uh, one of my favorite games was, uh, what was it called? Heim Bandit. Hmm. And, uh, and, you know, cracking the, the, the protection on the Zaxxon cassette the day that it came. <laughs> and uh, were you successful? Uh, yeah. Nice. <laughs> took, took me a couple of hours longer than I thought it would, though. <laughs> and now that you mentioned that, you, you are for a slightly different uh, age bracket than many of us. But I, I always wonder, uh, to your, your same age peers, uh, is it even rarer for them to be into games and computers than for us? Because that's the generation I have little touch with. Uh, yeah, I think... I think they did, they they there were people my age and older who who went to the arcades, but they didn't really take to it so much on home computers and so on. Um, I, I recall, I mean, I got into computers as as a as an occupation, mm -hmm. uh, and I was for the first ten years of my career the youngest guy in the office, which. It's kind of weird, right? Because you, you think it's it's always constantly younger and younger people. But um, there was a time in the 80s when it was just a bunch of aging, middle-aged people. Um, and uh, and PCs hadn't really penetrated yet. That's really interesting. Uh, because, you know, I, I think that if you grew up with this stuff, it would impact you more in that era than it impacted me or, or somebody that was like five or ten years younger because you saw those changes progressively and could understand them if if you went into them, right? But that didn't happen. Uh, you mean in my case or you mean in the, in the in case general. of people older than me? Yeah, in general. I, I mean, I, I um, maybe I'm part of the generation or... Can't really call it a generation. A group of people who, who really felt that yeah, it was possible to know everything about a machine mm. forever, right? Until until some point in the '90s when things just the complexity exploded. Yeah, and we'll go deeper into that theme because it's it's really central and important to to both you guys' work. What do you think about this, Eric? What do you think about how how it felt growing up and seeing all these technologies and and the people? how much they went into them around you? Um, I think I was always a little more interested than people my own age, but I, I think by the time that I was growing up, it had already started. It, it's interesting because I, I was thinking about in, what was it, in second grade, where they'd send us to, in the, during school hours, you know, they'd say once a week there or twice a week, they'd send you to computer lab and they'd, have things in there like that like number munchers or whatever but they'd also have things in there that were just straight up games and i i guess that wasn't a, a attempt to get maybe some of the kids who weren't as inclined to mess around with the computer to at least interface with one and and i i think that's probably uh, i i i have to doubt that that still happens these days that they that uh, any schools out there think that they need to have a class to get kids interested in trying to use a tablet or something, but I don't know. It's just kind of weird. Um, but, but yeah, like uh, they, they'd have the, the, the number munchers and they'd have uh, Oregon trail, which was really just a Buffalo shooting game when I was a kid or, um, uh, or, or the one that I would play a lot was called swashbuckler. And it was just a, uh, a straight up sword fighting game. Well, there wasn't really too much, uh, 
educational about it. So interesting. Now that you mention it, uh, it came to my mind because when you bought a computer back in those days, it came with, first of all, physical manuals. But those manuals could be in two parts, two separate manuals, or, or the part of the manual at the back taught you how to program that computer and maybe even how to repair it and have diagrams. Did you have contact with that? And what do you think about that in contrast to today's uh, world, Eric? Um, well, certainly when we got that TI-99, it had a manual with a, a bunch of example programs in there. And I absolutely typed those into the computer and I'd modify numbers here and there um, to see what it would do. And that, that kind of started programming for me was, uh, was doing stuff like that. I mean, was a, and it helps that I was, again, young. I was six or seven typing in these programs and modifying them. And just uh, it, it led to greater appreciation for uh, programming and wanting to do it more. Yeah. And, and what about you, Dave? Uh, you mean uh, getting having contact with uh, with systems that that uh, that came with their own documentation? Yeah, and uh, the contrast to today's world. Yeah, well, you know, back in the first generation, the uh, the Model One and so on, there were a lot of like the magazines would have here. Here's a customization you can do to your machine. Here, let you know. Here's a here's how you can put lowercase on your screen. Or uh, let's open it up. Let's uh, let's make a an electronics uh, add-on that that plays music out the back. These were these were like hobbyist projects, and I was uh, I had built a couple of those. Um, there was sort of the uh, I mean, you you don't <laughs> at that point you you spend all of your money for a year on buying a machine, and you're really afraid to uh, to connect something up to it that that isn't really certified right but mm -hmm. uh did that and it was uh it was a lot of fun yeah i can't imagine what where, where is was it easy to source the parts and the tools to work on this it was a completely different world back then i mean um if i if i couldn't get it at radio shack and i mean they they would have like resistors and and but they wouldn't have most of the chips right so you'd have to go to like active electronics and those guys they'd say yeah well if you're not a business we don't really want to give you an account and you know why would i give an account to a kid well i don't want credit man i just want to buy some parts um mm. but yeah it was um it was difficult and of course pc boards uh you couldn't you couldn't just order them you uh you would take these these black tapes and and stick them to the uh to a, a printed circuit board and you'd try to etch it in this ferric chloride solution in mm -hmm. uh in a uh a, a, a shallow tub somewhere and of course you know noxious chemicals and how do i get rid of this junk is it okay <laughs> to put in the sewer and so on like that and uh what about you Rick? What, were you into that kind of uh modifications on how difficult was was it for you uh well when i was a little older into high school i had kind of an amazing teacher he was the physics teacher and then he also had a computer science and engineering class that he taught which i, I don't know how common that was at the time but it was, it was super neat um, some of the things that we did in there include like taking out uh breadboards and you'd wire up little logic games where you could uh There'd be chips that can't using NAND gates and AND gates and OR gates mm. and whatever. You'd do a little lockout game where it would randomly light up an LED, and then uh, each person would try and hit their buzzer first, and whoever got it first, it would lock out the other one. 
so you could tell who who was faster. So I did stuff like that, and then also later on, he had his. Um, I don't know how common wire wrapping is known. Hmm. Uh, it's not super common, I don't think now, and I don't know if that it was then very much. But we would wire wrap together just a simple sixty-five hundred two with some memory and uh, like a TTL terminal, and so ma- basically made a little computer with with wire wrapping, which is kind of a simple way of of soldering. Probably safer too. Probably yeah. the school probably preferred that we not use soldering irons as much. Yeah, and it's also it 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 also tends to be neat because you have to. Uh, tense the wires right uh so as i recall it's been a long time since i did this now you you you'd strip a large portion of it and then you just wrap it around mm-hmm. the, the leg like like a dozen times or something to make a you use a tool right yeah there's a specific tool that mm-hmm. it would you'd slide the wire into it and then push the whole thing over the, the leg of the chip which was long and then you just spin it, and it would wrap the wire around it multiple times. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I've always wanted one of those tools. <laughs> and uh, did you have experience like that, uh, Dave? Uh, I mean, building with wire wrap, or you went straight to solder? I was soldering at age seven. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> and I probably still have some scars. But um, no, I never actually uh, tried wire wrap. It, it always looked um, <laughs> really complex. <laughs> Yeah, that's funny. I, I think so, I always thought that soldering was harder, so I well, <laughs> largely avoided it. Regarding soldering, I, I guess that you uh, at that time that you blindly look for the for the soldering iron and grab it with your full hand. You you never forget that. Yeah, no, I don't think I did that, but I did. I did brush the back of my opposite hand a few times. Wow, yeah, <laughs> that also happens. So. Uh, did you ever get into like mainstream gaming systems back in the eighties? Like I know the BCS, the Intellivision. I I mean uh, the NES. Uh, what about you, Eric? Um. So after the TI ninety nine, uh, I believe that, w- that the next one and stop after that for me was the NES. And so I also have a, a pretty good soft spot for that. I've got a lot of. Uh, memories of playing games that I'm sure a lot of people who enjoy the NES would recognize and well, do recognize and are all pretty well known. Um, but I, I like some of the ones I guess they're a little less popular too. Like uh, I still think Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles is a great game. I, mm. I beat that one as a kid and loved it. Um, uh, but, I'll, but I tended to like some of the harder ones too. I don't know if I ever managed to completely beat Ninja Gaiden. I know I made it to the final boss, boss rush as a kid. Mm-hmm. That's uh, brutal. <laughs> yeah. But but then some of the ones that and then like um so maybe some of the lesser known but still probably people know about um, like Super Dodgeball has always been a, a favorite of my family's uh, or um, one that I personally liked was uh, F1 Built to Win uh, which was a racing game that started you out in a, I think a Mini Cooper which I didn't know what what it was as a kid not <laughs> not familiar with uh, British cars but it starts you out in a Mini Cooper with a terrible tires and terrible engine and you race, you make money, and you can make your car better, and then eventually buy a new car, and it sends you all over the United States through different races, and then eventually you make it to the F1 circuit, and you start over. I had a ton of fun playing that game as a kid. And uh, what about you, Dave? Yeah, so for 
consoles. I, I mean, I remember having a couple of friends who had like an uh, Intellivision, a ColecoVision, and I, I, I really wanted one, but they were just too too expensive at the time. But mm-hmm. I had my computer, so that was fine. Um, and then, you know, I, I, I wrote a game for the, uh, the color computer in, in 83, 84. And just as that got released, we had the whole Atari collapse, the 1984 um, collapse of the, the whole video game, everything. And uh, I mean, that was just as I was going off to university as well. So I kind of walked away from the scene for a while. I kind of missed out on the, uh, the NES. And I mean, I wouldn't have been too impressed at it at the time anyway, because it just, you know, the, the colors and, and the, the sprite sizes weren't the kinds of things, even though the games are good, the, those things weren't really enough to uh, to turn my crank. But uh, a few years later, I, uh, I was traveling in Hong Kong and uh, I'm walking through this underground arcade and I see off to my side this this system and it looks kind of like an arcade system but it's it's uh, it's just a tv set and i walk over to it and it it was playing uh, it was a pc engine playing uh, something i don't remember exactly what might have been kung fu or it might have been uh, east hmm. um, but just the, the the colors and and the uh, the sound and and the, the size of the sprites it it shocked me and uh i just i wanted to to, to get more so that's sort of how it gelled on the PC Engine. <laughs> and uh, did you end up buying a PC Engine on that trip? or I later? did. Okay. I, I did. And then later on when they, like I, I thought this thing's going to have to come out in, in North America. It's got to come out in North America as well. And, and uh, around that time, Toronto was getting a lot of immigrants from Hong Kong and some of them set up these video game import shops. So you had, you had, them importing a couple of PC Engine games, and wow. so I bought a couple of games. and And when the later that year, when Turbo Graphics came out, I bought one, and I was all excited, and uh, and I thought it was going to be a big thing. Little did I know. Uh, but around Christmas time, I, I I broke open both of the systems, and I started tracing out all the wires, and I realized that these are really the same system with just a few data lines swapped. So uh, I built a little converter, and uh, and it worked. And then I I uh, I got my brother to help me sketch out a uh, a PC board, and uh, I would talk to one of the guys who who owned one of these toy stores that did the imports, and he still had contacts back in Hong Kong to to get parts. And we made the uh, the Kisado wow. connector, which was uh, legendary uh, kind of Kisado. Yeah, kind of a big deal in the PC Engine scene for a while. Awesome. That's awesome. And uh, then my next question was precisely related to what you were just uh, telling us. Uh, what what did you feel that some of the CPUs that you knew from personal computers or from maybe the university uh, were being used in these machines? Because this the Maybe some of the public doesn't notice, but the PC Engine and the NES do have the same CPU, basically, right? Uh, yeah. Well, I wasn't I wasn't so into the sixty five oh two yet. Mm-hmm. Um, I had I had a buddy who had a, a VIC twenty and a, a Commodore sixty four and a Commodore Pet, and he was really gung ho on the sixty five oh two. I had another friend who had an Apple II, and he was big on the sixty five oh two. But I learned on the Z eighty, 
and I moved on to the 6809, which, sad to say, is a far superior processor to the 6502. Um, but, you know, and then I went off to university, and yeah, they were teaching a, a, a course on 6809, and my prof was really a disappointment. <laughs> okay. And, and what about you, Rick? Did you, where, when did you, because we're a different uh, age bracket here, when did you start getting into those kind of uh, details regarding the game consoles? Um, game consoles specifically. Or uh, computers, for, doesn't matter. Well, well, I'm just thinking the, I, I did start a little bit in that, in that uh, high school class I mentioned. We learned some assembly on, I think it was the Z80. Hmm. Z80, I guess. Um, so I had started to learn some assembly there, whereas most of the stuff that I'd done before then was like basic or some of the higher level programs. Um, but the first um, like game related looking at how it works type stuff was probably um, when I was in high school, there was an arcade game that I really liked called Outrun. No. <laughs> which not, or no, wait. Not Outrun. Sorry, that's the one I... I always mix those two up. Outrun is the one that everybody knows. Hot Rod. Okay. Hot Rod is an overhead um, racer um, by Sega. It is by Sega, but it's an overhead racer. And they have this in the arcade, and all of my friends loved it. And I had noticed that um, maybe a few years later than that, it, it had shown up in, in MAME as unsupported. And so my, my first kind of dig into how the game actually works on the code was to, to start digging through there. And um, it turns out that the only reason it was unsupported was once one tiny little bug and I figured it out. So that was my, uh, if you go back looking in MAME, you can see, I think I mentioned in the, the pull request or whatever they called it back then, but that got system, system 24 games to work on MAME. And it turns out that the, the change is really small. It's a, uh, it was just an issue of um, address mapping. Um, so the the processor that it was used in the systems um, had, uh, it's a 32-bit processor, so it had more lines of addressing for memory than it can use. Mm -hmm. And so somewhere in the code, it addressed stuff beyond where the memory was at. And so in MAME at the time, it didn't know what to do with that, so it ignored it. And it turned out that what, what you really had to do was just ignore some of the high bits and then all of a sudden, the, the whole system started working. Awesome. Because this is something that's fairly common, that people that don't have access to the hardware can fix things in emulation, right? And it, it feels strange from the outside, but it is it's more common than you expect, right? Yeah. Um, it, it did come from having a knowledge in general of how processors work um, and just recognizing that... Mm -hmm. Likely, like, like it, you could see that they were, um, there was a debug message in MAME saying, oh, by the way, it's reading and writing to this area of memory where there's nothing there. And that would show up in the log. Hmm. And then, so all, all you really had to do was to say, well, why are they doing that? And it's just, oh, they're just ignoring the extra bits. And yep. So if you recognize how it probably was wired up, and you might not necessarily need to know for sure that that happens, especially if you try it and it works. Yeah. Although that is a dangerous method. <laughs> <laughs> but it's it's fairly common when you're working with software, right? Yep. And uh, well, what uh, what happened with that little PC engine after that, Dave? Uh, well, 
you know, actually, after about a year or so, um, the PC engine was going, and the uh, I mean, I, I I got a Mega Drive, but I didn't really play any games on it. But when the uh, Super Nintendo came out, and that seemed to steal everybody's attention, I kind of disappeared from the scene for a bit. Mm. Um, and I was invited back to the Turbo List in '93, and uh, met a bunch of people online, and uh, learned about importing more of the newer games from japan and i thought oh that's really cool stuff and so i i, I got into it there everybody was really excited about the uh the casado that i had and uh that really grew and i thought you know what it would be really cool if we could make our own game um but you know there there was no technical information mm-hmm. right it, and uh it was it was a struggle how do you how do you write a game for something that there's no technical information for. Well, you've got to try and take it apart and see what's in there. And well, there's supposed to be a 6502 of some sort, but it's, you know, the memories are much bigger and, and they seem to be uniform and so on. So you're digging, you're trying to find information, you're asking people. And uh, at some point, we got a few whispers from some guy who had been a developer or been related to development in Japan. And uh, he, he gave us some, some very basic information, but it was enough to start decoding the existing programs, and, uh, or at least to a certain degree. And, and at that point, I thought, well, you know what? Maybe I should try to make an emulator. And this is before Magic Engine, and there were just whispers of, of NES emulators going around as well. And uh, so I started to, to write one, and it got to the point where it would run a few seconds of a few games hmm. um, just as Magic Engine was coming out. But mine had a like a, a debug interface. Um, and uh, when Magic Engine came out, obviously it was a much better emulator. And uh, David Michel uh, was absolutely up for, for sharing whatever technical information he had. And, uh, and that went really well. And we spent a few weekends trying to figure out how the arcade card worked. And that was a lot of fun, too. Somewhere around 96, they published some, some more information around, about the uh, PC Engine, but it was in a, in a book called uh, Debero. It was a Japanese mm-hmm. um, kind of a... They called it a MOOC. It's a magazine and a book kind of a format with a, with a CD-ROM on it. And uh, they were trying to get people to become developers. It didn't do so well, but it was it was a first glimpse at some developer information, and we got a few more uh, extra bits and pieces off of that. Very difficult to decode, though, except if you could read katakana, mm-hmm. you could probably read about 20% of the words in the book, which was the way that a lot of magazines are, a lot of technical mm-hmm. manuals. Um, Katakana are mostly words originating in English, but uh, transliterated, although sometimes they're really, yeah. really brutalized. Phon- phonetical, right? To yes, the, exactly. Yeah. So that, um, that was a lot of fun. Yeah. And, uh, it, you know, since then, I've, I've been trying to figure out little bits and pieces of the, the PC engine. Not everything is known even today. That's true. And uh, just as a, 
a note for everybody that's listening that probably doesn't know what the PC Engine is and the travel graphics. They're small systems that came out uh, to compete directly with the NES back in the mid-80s. And uh, they were fairly superior in terms of color, speed, and sound because you could code in uh, wavelets, right? That, that kind of thing. It's a PSG, but you could s upload small... Uh, You'd say it's samples, but not exactly. And uh, loop those, and uh, it, it was above what an NES could do in terms of color and resolution. And uh, it was expanded. You mentioned the arcade card, and the arcade card is uh, a device that allows the CD-ROM add-on to have extra RAM so it can buffer stuff from the CD-ROM, right? It's like you used to have a, a, a spoon to take out water from a pool and now you had a, a huge plate <laughs> and it was easier to take out chunks of, of data from the CD-ROM to the system. And uh, speaking about that and the arcade uh, work that you did, uh, Eric, uh, many, uh, many things are unknown in the PC Engine to this date. And that's, I know, not the mainstream system around the world, but it's a big system that was AAA and have many games. It almost uh, uh, beat Nintendo in Japan for a while and uh, was competing with the Mega Drive and, uh, and, and the Super Nintendo for quite a while. It, it took several years uh, that it was fighting. And it, that is not very well documented. Now, you were working in those early days with, with MAME on an arcade PCB, and arcade PCBs are even less so documented, right? Did you work more in that path? Um, as far as MAME went, I, I think I tried a little bit to help with some of the, uh, encryption stuff that was happening, but I really wasn't probably much help. Like, at, that was the time that they were looking at the, um, what do they call those? The... GPS. Uh, no, it's the, uh, the 68K... Oh, the Sega ones? Um, encrypted, or encrypted processors. They're, mm -hmm. they, I think they had Z81s that were encrypted, and they also had... Yes. 68K that were encrypted. I forget what the model names are, but... The um, FD, FD CPUs, right? FD, FD that sounds right. FD1094, I believe, is, yep, is one. That's, yeah. Those are the ones. Yes. So I remember um, um, at the time that I was uh, looking at Maine, that those were kind of coming up. And so I was a bit of a math nerd, so I was just trying to look for patterns in the encryption tables that they were generating, look for simplifications. I don't think I did very much with that, but uh, I, I did try for a while. It was, it was fun just as a... Um, logic type of thing to do. I've always liked logic puzzles. Mm -hmm. um, like those, I don't know if you've, if you've ever seen the, uh, the kind of puzzles where they say uh, like, Jane is sitting two seats from the left mm -hmm. and Fred is sitting three seats from somebody who doesn't like purple or something and they'd give you the list of things and you'd go through and try and solve them. I guess it's kind of like Pycross as, as, a, as a game, but um, logic puzzles like that have always appealed to me and and trying to look through uh, encryption tables, I guess, is kind of the uh, a ridiculous upgraded version of that. <laughs> yeah, because it's huge chunks of data that, yeah, and that's that's one thing that I wanted to ask about the tools that you were using. You didn't have like entropy visualizers in three D, right? No, no, I was just <laughs> yeah. You just kind of uh, pull up in like a hex editor or something, and just kind of skim through it and look for anything that looked like it was repeating or or maybe you could 
do it so it would alternate a certain number of times and just just looking for patterns was all I was doing, which is why I probably didn't accomplish much. <laughs> yeah, it's it's completely different. The tools and the CPUs that you had access to, and the same goes for, for Dave, right? Uh, what kind of equipment were you using to, to build these emulators and also to try and figure out and picking at the PC Engine uh, innards? Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, oscilloscopes back then were well over a thousand dollars and uh logic state analyzers wouldn't give you what you needed and and also they were <laughs> super super expensive um i started out with with a um like one of those copier systems from uh, from hong kong wow uh, I, picked, mm -hmm. I picked it up in in 92 and and uh, did a dump on the uh, on the machine and i i i started just understanding what does the byte code look like? If this was a 6502, what would I be decoding? Where would I be going? What would be in register A, X, or Y at this moment? And uh, and so based on that, you know, I, I built a a rudimentary emulator for the CPU first, and single step through instructions. And uh, how how easy was uh, it to get information on each CPU? Um, I know there are books, but how easy was it for you to get that information? Um, well, 6502 was really well documented. Um, so, I mean, if I, if I start from the assumption that this is a 6502 with some extensions, I only have to worry about the extensions. So those would show up as undocumented instructions. Um, that's easy enough. Um, we, yeah, it wasn't just me. There were other people um, also poking around trying to find, you know, who's developing on this system. There's some American developers somewhere. Where are they? There's some Japanese people, but by that time, they still weren't on the Internet. Japan was about five to ten years later because computers were not a home thing, by and large. They were more of a, you go to work and, you, and there's a computer at your desk, and why would you want one at home kind of a thing. Um, so it was, it was really... Um, uh, separated worlds um, but we you know we could get little bits and pieces we could say oh I'm I'm it's trying to write to this address here I wonder what's supposed to be at that address and uh, you know especially in 96 when when that uh, book came out uh, Devero that really opened some doors in terms of you know here's how the uh, the graphics are encoded here's mm -hmm. uh, what the palette is like and uh, here's some information on the sound system it wasn't enough but it was certainly a big jump forward um and then it's it's really you know a little bit of intuition a little bit of log tracing a little bit of uh, uh so on and so forth and you say well you know I, I gotta write a test um you know are there any wait states okay so you find out yes there are wait states but of course that doesn't tell you the whole story when you're writing to the video RAM, you know that there are wait states. You don't know when those wait states are, and that's a big, big thing. You know, I can I can tell you that no PC Engine emulator is as good as the Mr. Core for PC Engine since uh, SRG320 rewrote it, because he understood the wait states on the video RAM. He must have done huge logic traces. Uh, it's it's brilliant work. Um, but, uh, you know, you can take a look at Wonder Momo. That game, it goes through a sequence where it loads a bunch of stuff into video memory. And it runs two IRQs, 
on the same IRQ line. One IRQ is going to be at the end of the screen, and the other one is at, at a line about a third of the way down from the end of the screen. Mm -hmm. And the program isn't smart about it. It doesn't say, oh, which one of them is this, is this particular oh. interrupt? It just says, okay, on, one, on interrupt A, I do this. On interrupt B, I do that. And if you load the video RAM too quickly, um, it'll, it'll get mixed up as to which one is A and which one is B. And that's why you know, emulators like MedNaf and show it up with a kind of a disjoint title screen. I see, and, and that's uh, that's something hard to, to come by unless you have these tools, right? You mentioned that he probably had a huge logic analyzer dumps to figure that out. Yeah, I, I can't I can't see how he would have been able to otherwise. I mean, a lot of people in the uh, in the scene have written tools um, in software mm -hmm. to say, let me see if I can trick the processor into doing this. I mean, um, two of the guys, Chris Covell and uh, a gentleman who calls himself Elmer on, uh, on the boards. Uh, both of those guys know very well what, what the timing number of, of uh, cycles are between this interrupt and that interrupt and when the, the, the latch happens on a, uh, on a scan line because they wrote those tests. They were mm -hmm. measuring how many CPU cycles would happen. Um, but that's, that you can count cycles, but you don't know if there's three out of five cycles that have a... a uh, that have a, a weight state, you don't know which three they are. Yeah, and uh, that's something that's central to what we'll both talk and, and that you probably have a lot of experience also as well, Eric, that we don't have these game consoles figured out yet, right? F fully, I mean. Uh, things are, are advancing and we are learning stuff, but it's it's hard to believe for somebody out there uh, about the nuance of getting this information right and not, not only getting it documented and demonstrated in some way, but also to get it implemented in, in, in your system, right? Because it's the PC Engine, for example, it's how many years old? Uh, 30, it's going to be 35 next year. Yeah, it's going to be 35. And, and we are just now getting to a point where the technology to do the analysis for a hobbyist is kind of at hand, right? and group efforts around the world, and we are getting older, and systems are getting older. So there's, uh, there's so much work that needs to be done. And uh, how, what, was, what has been your relationship to this kind of information, Eric? Um, well, it's kind of funny that, that he mentioned Wonder Momo. Um, I, at one point, did try to fix that in the Mr. Core for PC Engine, and came to the exact same conclusion, just like he was talking about how it could be one or the other, and it, and it would have been really easy for those software devs to just put in a tiny little piece of code so that it would automatically choose one or the other, and then the emulators wouldn't have to worry about it. But no, they didn't. <laughs> um, and yeah, I, I tried to work at it, and, and because I didn't have the uh, those weight states like he's talking about, it, it was just it, it, I couldn't fix it because I just didn't have the knowledge of how to do it. I didn't have the hardware to to go probing into uh, a real one to to see how it works, and and. Yeah, that, that Wonder Momo is, uh, sometimes you just want to walk up to the devs and shake your head at them, but uh, <laughs> they got it working on the hardware, so it doesn't really matter. <laughs> yeah. There, there, there are so many stories of emulator authors finding code in games that does not make sense or takes advantage, uh, sorry, it 
relies on a bug behavior and probably the dev never knew about it. Yep. Yeah, the, the public needs to understand here that the uh, thing is that hardware is canonical, not the specification, not the documentation. They could be at conflict because a bug at that level obviously wasn't documented at the time. So even if the documentation says something, if hardware does a different thing, that's canon. And if we have several versions of a console or a personal computer and each one behaves differently with that, that's a big issue, right? Yeah. So I can, I can think of another um, example of, of something like this. I think it's um, King of Fighters 2004, I think, on the Neo Geo that has a... Um, a hack? Yeah. So, so King of Fighters 2004 is actually kind of a homebrew, really. Mm -hmm. I think it pulls in code from all sorts of places, wherever it can find them to try and generate a huge roster. And uh, one of the things that, that people did is they pulled in samples, sound samples from other, other games mm. that weren't originally on the Neo Geo. And so um, if you go and at one point, somebody had reported a bug in the Neo Geo core with, uh, I think it's Athena, where the sound completely corrupts while it plays. And... So I, I went digging on that for a little while and eventually found out that, um, well, I, I had to do some guesswork again, which is kind of what I do. And um, I had noticed that there was a change in, I guess it was in MAME, where they had updated their code recently to, to get an updated view of how the Neo Geo samples are encoded. Mm -hmm. And, it, and uh, so I went and started thinking a little bit and said, okay, this was only recently known, so... Back when this uh, homebrew 2004 game was created, they're using the wrong method to encode samples. And so I, I went and dug around for a while and eventually found where the sample was in the, um, in the game, pulled out the, the binary data, did the opposite of the broken wrong encode thing, so to decode it back into the raw waveform. And if you play that raw waveform, sure enough, the corruption is gone. It doesn't have the weird... Uh, noise and screeching that happens on there as a raw waveform. And then if you go and then apply the correct, newly figured out um, encoding method on that waveform, you can put it back into a binary sample that the Neo Geo recognizes. And if you paste that over the top of the original one, you now have sound that doesn't mess up on real hardware. Mm -hmm. So, Yeah, and it's kind of a inverse situation, right? Because it's the same kind of problem, documentation and tools not being available but they, they simply did it wrong back then, and you could correct the game, right? Was that game a, um, a, an authentic release, or was that... No, no. So, it, it's, so I think they took one of the previous versions of King of Fighters as a base, and then mm -hmm. they just added like characters from like the PlayStation version and whatever. But so this, so would, they, this, this would play on an emulator, but not on real hardware? Yeah, so if you played it on MAME, then, at the time, it sounded correctly, because MAME was using the same incorrect encoding <laughs> decoding scheme but if you tried to play it on real hardware you'd get screeching nasty noises because it was wrong <laughs> pet peeve <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of the equivalent of the uh, uh, NES homebrew from way back when where people would make modifications ROM hacks or whatever that relied on incorrect understanding of how the NES mappers work so Exactly. And then, and then people would be, you know, the competing emulator would be called out on, on it being, you know, wrong. Yeah. And then, of course, the, the question be, 
becomes, is it wrong? Let's try it on real hardware. And then, oops, doesn't work on real hardware. And testing on real hardware wasn't as easy back then when, when many of these things was, were done, right? Like game translations. Uh, I, I, I worked a bit on a Super Nintendo uh, fan translation for Sailor Moon and other story. And the ending patch did run on emulators, but didn't run on real hardware. That happens a lot. It, uh, it does. And it's very hard to test thoroughly on, on real hardware. But there were ways of doing that. I mean, unless somebody invented a new mapper, in which case you're, it would never run on real hardware unless you built, built a it, yeah. cartridge. Yeah, that's a, a very important question and uh, something that fortunately has become less uh, of a conflict point uh, as years passed and people have ways to, to run flashcards and, uh, or send data directly to the console, right? But back then, as you mentioned, the, the emulator that did it wrong got the upper hand because it, it ran, right? Oh, I, I see it. I see it kind of the reverse. I think that this is, we're going to see more and more of it as the hardware disappears. Oh, yeah, probably. Well, yeah. in a way, I, I think I, I agree with what Artemio was saying there, though, is at the time, the emulator that could run it would seem like the better one. It's just now in retrospect, people who have those old ROM hacks that don't work, nowadays, those are, those are terrible ROM hacks. Don't play those. <laughs> those don't work. So or, or somebody fixed kind them. of flipped. Yeah, yeah maybe the time, but they're not now. The, the quality of ROM hack is 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 improving, I suppose. But you know, um, I, I see uh, Trinx is uh, is writing. You know, every NES bug report ever. Um, it's every every Magic Engine bug report ever <laughs> as well. Is you know, how did you rip this? Where did you get this from? Is this authentic? Does it work? Because yeah, basically every bug report ever. Yeah, and uh, fortunately, we have uh, better ways nowadays to, to test that. And uh, yeah, confirmation is, is hard. And, and both of you have probably been a lot into that kind of confirmation at, in the end because it, it ends up in your lap and not the, the person requesting the, the bug to be fixed. Oh, yeah, for sure. I, I, I worry about the authenticity of RIPs because how bad they were in the early days. It's gotten a lot better. But uh, but when somebody gets something off of the internet, you never you really never know. So I I have to uh, test the real game on real hardware. Yeah, and uh, just as, as it's been mentioned by uh, by Trinix and Santiot on the chat and by you guys, mainly what you just mentioned, Dave, that as as original hardware fades out, uh, this can go anywhere, right? Unless we have uh, proper implementations or proper documentation because uh, documentation could survive implementations if implementations are not uh, kept up with technology. Documentation also needs to do that, but it's, it's kind of easier. And uh, it, it's hard because we know that we'll never get to the point that we'll be 100% sure that everything is documented. Or do you think uh, we will? As as machines get more complex, it's it's exponentially more difficult. I think on a on a game system like PC Engine, we can convince ourselves of ninety nine point nine 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 percent. There will always be this this one little question mark. But you know, I, as an as a an emulator author from way back, I 
I say, yeah, it's it's the the CPU and the VDP and and uh, and all the little bits on the circuit board. But as you know, um, beyond that, it's not just that. It's it's how does it communicate with the peripherals? What's the timing like uh, to external things? Um, how how is the color? How is the sound? Uh, and uh, and so on and so forth. And the analog parts of the machine, right? Absolutely. And have you? I mean, it's. Yeah, it's sure. only in the last few years, I think, that anybody's actually been looking at those parts. Yeah, yeah, that's true. And uh, and getting back to what we were saying, it's because we have access to te technology, and uh, it, it's it's strange, right? Because sometimes you can say, just put that old uh, Sega Master System into a sealed bin and let it be kept for I don't know fifty years, and when we get more technology, analyze it. But will the, is that feasible? I believe that we need to do as much as we can right now. Your capacitors are going to rot the, yeah. the traces underneath them. Yeah. You, you'd need somebody to know exactly what they're doing and, and mummify the system, right? I think so. And uh, Eric, uh, have you dealt with any issues in... Uh, in certain games or, or cores that are related to to these kind of things, like small quirks that are not documented in the hardware, aside from those? Uh, yeah, there's uh, that, that's kind of the... the um, uh, I, I guess I could talk a little bit about um, what I've been doing recently yeah. with the, that's kind of related to that. Um, so, um, the... Um, well... <laughs> Not documented. Well, actually, maybe there's um, that kind of goes a little bit more, I think, into into some of the mappers actually on the mm -hmm. NES. Um, there are just so many mappers out there, and because a large, um, hardly any of them have the a fixed timing um, available to them, which is super important, mainly for the IRQs, which are the ways that the um, NES times things. So um, I think the most complicated one that I'm aware of is actually like the title screen of one of the Indiana Jones games where it, it's using like inside of scan lines, changing colors so that it can create a sunset for title screen and, mm. uh, trying to get that right without, um, having exact timing everywhere is, is kind of a mess. And so that's kind of the mappers. And it's also, um, uh, Katrinx did a lot of work on the uh, PPU to try and fix some of the timing issues that are in there as well. Just because if you don't get all of those lined up exactly right, then uh, you'll get flashing pixels or you'll get uh, uh, the picture jumping up and down or all, all these um, weird behaviors that can happen. And they're mainly because the timing on the IRQ or the timing in the PPU isn't done quite right. Um, the NES, it's, it's nice a little bit because the that one has been, the PPU has been decapped. Mm -hmm. um, and you can go look and how it behaves on real hardware. And so, like I said, Katrinx has done a lot of work to make sure that the one the implementation that we have now is pretty close to the original. Um, but there's still the issue with a lot of these mappers where the exact timing where that IRQ comes can be slightly off and... and because nobody's gone through and decapped the mapper. Uh, I don't know, hundreds of different MMC chips or, or that are out there that 
It just might be a little off, and it just might mess up a pixel or a line or two. And speaking of which, um, I'm going to briefly uh, speak about what these things are for those in the audience that might not be familiar with what mappers are. They are an extension to the system that's inside of the cartridge. So when you plug in Super Mario Bros. 3, you have extra computing power in, in certain way that allows the NES to do stuff that it couldn't do, like swap memory from place or make scrolls and a bunch more things. And this is uh, extra circuitry. That's not just data uh, that expands the NES system. And uh, Eric also mentioned decapping, and this involves taking a chip, like, like one of these mappers, or a CPU or a PPU. The PPU is the, the analog part to what a GPU today would be. It's the, the part of the NES that does the video and uh, handles all, all video data or graphics data more appropriate properly. And uh, you grab one of those and you somehow scrape off the copper of it. It could be laser, it could be chemical. And uh, then you put that, the, the, the bare uh, silicon under a microscope uh, and try to photograph it so that you get access to how the transistors are created and laid out in the in the silicon and how they connect. And uh, developers such as Trinix and, and yourself, Eric, uh, work based on data, that data to replicate that inside of the Mr. FPGA, which is, uh, I think, uh, one of the of the most uh, proper ways to do this. But it's not the only one, right? Can you tell us more about that, Eric? And correct yeah, me if, I, if I say anything. No, that was, that was a good, a good summarization of, of, of what's in there. They also have, um, like, uh, expansion audio can be inside of these extra mm -hmm. chips that are in some of the cartridges. Um, I, I guess I would probably describe a mapper as basically letting you access more data than you could otherwise. So mm. if, the, if the base system would only let you access 128 pages of, of a book, then these mappers let you, say, um, access... Um, 256 or 512 or 1024 um, pages of a book and by sending it an extra command to say work on the first quarter of the book or the second quarter or if I ask for something from page 1 through 10 get it from page 510 or, or whatever they can they can do all sorts of different uh, of remapping so that you can access a larger set of data to make the games more complex um, that's kind of the, the first mappers were kind of basically that and then um, the more, really the, the only other two things that they really added for the NES are that, that extra timer from that IRQ mm -hmm. and um, uh, extra memory, um, which just let, lets you like save data or just being able to keep track of more things at a time um, or audio. So th those are kind of the main things that mapper chips on the NES bring, but the way that they work is all different. Um, so for example, if... The way that the NES is organized is it can basically send out an, an address and a, and a number. And those, those are your commands to, your, to the mapper. And they can mean anything. And on different chips, they do mean anything. So in, in one uh, chip, Order 66 might be to go hunt down all the Jedi. But on <laughs> another one, it might, it might be, go, go get me a sandwich. And, and it's and, interesting, sorry to interrupt you, that these commands are sent to the ROM area, right? They're, they're sent to the cartridge... Um, PRG area, which is which is kind of the ROM, um, and it, if you did, if you were to have 
um, like RAM hooked up instead of ROM, then you would overwrite parts of the game and it would mm-hmm. stop working. So yeah, that's 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 true usually. Um, although they they can also write to some of the areas below where the ROM is at and also be interpreted in that same way. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, but most of them do go to the ROM area and they would overwrite game data if you were using RAM instead of ROM, or at least if you allowed the the write to go through. But yeah, that, that that's that's kind of the idea behind why I don't agree with the idea that saving the ROM data is a complete picture of what's in the cartridge. If you mm-hmm. if you don't know the, the map or specifics, what type it is. I mean, there's there are several um, different types that are, like a lot of them will use one type. Like there's MMC1 and MMC3 are the, are like probably the biggest couple that almost, uh, I don't know the percentage off the top of my head, but a large percentage of the games will be like one of those two. Or, or MMC0, which is basically no mapper. It just has the ROM. And so between those three, you get most of the games. But if you don't know if it's MMC1 or MMC3, MMC3 then you, you won't know how to recreate the cartridge. If um, so, so you need to have more than just the contents of those ROM chips. You need to know what other hardware was on those boards to be able to preserve what they were. And then you need to figure out how those individual mappers work so that you can preserve that too. And it could be kind of a circular problem, right? Because I was once involved in dumping uh, a NES game. We made an event in Mexico where people could bring CPS2 boards for for me to dump and try to de-suicide. And uh, I invited people to bring any console games that they thought could not be dumped. And they brought uh, a NES-based home computer that had a regional software that taught about the geography of Mexico and that kind of thing. And uh, I, I tried using um, the copyness to dump the, the cartridge. And obviously I needed to understand what the mapper did. But thing is, it, it was just a blob in the cartridge covered by epoxy, right? Mm-hmm. And it's circular in, in the sense that you, if you don't know the mapper, you can't dump the game. But if you don't have a dump of the game, it's a uh, you can't correctly run the game, right? And uh, in some cases, you can just desolder the, the, the mask rooms and uh, dump them and leave that, which probably was the way that these were done. Or in some others, you have to have the game running and see what it does and uh, just try and catch what it does in the assembly while it's running and, and catch what the commands from the mapper are, right? Uh that's most that I'd say I agree with that. I would say that it is sometimes possible to figure out at least how the map works enough to dump it mm-hmm. if you take a lot of time. I have two carts that I uh, I've got a, a little dumper piece of hardware that I've got, and so what what I've done with two of the carts that I didn't know what kind of map they had to begin with I, um, is you can dump them in their raw state to get a little chunk of the ROM, mm-hmm. and then you can go take that to an emulator and run it mm-hmm. and wait for it to crash <laughs> basically yeah. and look for where it wrote basically to, to spots where mappers usually write to, like you were talking about in the ROM area usually, or in this the section between the audio and the ROM area. It's, it's in one of those two places. You go look for it and then recreate whatever writes they were doing and then go dump it again. You usually get more <laughs> data. And so you can, and then it'll crash again once you try and run that section. Mm-hmm. And then, mm-hmm. You can eventually fill out 
enough of the mapper to be able to say to to dump the whole thing usually I, I did that with these with two of the cards that I've got mm-hmm. um, it's long and annoying and then when I was done I figured out that they were mappers that we that uh, were already described but I didn't know what they were so <laughs> yeah that's, that's what I was referring to because you you don't know unless you know how every every wish every one of those works and based on on that even if, if you've dumped it you don't have a description of what the mapper really does inside to simulate right, it. Right. You just have like the black box way of dealing with it, right? Yeah, and, and then like like I was saying, for the IRQ, you wouldn't know the exact timing on that or mm-hmm. anything. It, it'll it, It's enough to get you started, but it's not enough to fully preserve it. Yeah, Trinix mentions that Rambo 1 uh, in Tangent Games was a good example of, of, of that kind of mapper. That's loose. Yeah, I, yeah I, I did work on that one for a while. There's a, a handful of games where and, and this comes comes up all the time. You you uh you try and fix one of them without knowing exactly how it works, and you'll fix that one, but you'll break another one. And then you try and fix those two at the same time, and you'll break a third. And then you end up in a circular thing where you break one, you fix one, you break one, you fix one. And mm-hmm. It never works because you don't have the timing right. Yeah, and that goes back to to what what kind of thing happens in the PC engine with mappers, uh, Dave. Uh, well, to be honest. Uh... The PC engine is almost mapper-free. Almost. <laughs> well, that is to say, it's got um, it's built into the processor. Mm-hmm. So it it, it um, the sixty-five hundred two, as most people would know, can address sixty-four kilobytes of RAM or of memory. And uh, of course, if you got a two megabit cartridge, that's more than sixty-four kilobytes. So what happens is um, you load these registers. And uh, you have these eight kilobyte windows, which can be any one of 256 places in memory. So that multiplies out to two megabytes of memory that uh, it can actually address. Um, so it's it's actually so much easier than the NES um, in in those terms. The only the only um, the only place where you have to get into mapping again was the the arcade card, which uh, which added an additional, I think it was uh, another two megabytes of memory yeah. to the uh, to the system, but it, it was also banked inside of a bank. And uh, the Street Fighter Two I, I game, thought, right? Yeah, I was, I was just gonna say I thought Street Fighter Two had some mapping in it. Oh yes, you're right. That's yeah, right. I I wrote a, a dumper for that, and it was fun. Yeah, it's it's really chunky though. It's only four chunks. Five chunks, I think, but um, that one is so much simpler than <laughs> than what Eric was just talking about. <laughs> yeah, because it's just memory, memory. It's memory banks, right? But uh, what about Populous? Uh, you mean the the card or the yeah, C- the card, the card? Well, it's got some memory somewhere. Um, <laughs> I'm not that familiar with it because I didn't I didn't ever try to accommodate it on the uh, on my emulator and. Uh, I think it's already been accommodated on on Mister before I looked at the core, so I think it's just a blob of of RAM that's somewhere in memory. Yeah, it is. Yeah, I, I can't remember the exact location. I don't remember if that one was one that I or Sorgalik fixed, but it, it it is just a little chunk of memory in there that you have to know about. Mm-hmm. And we've we've talked about your kind of a, a a glimpse into some of your work, but we didn't start from the beginning how how did you get into mr eric oh um well i i guess i had a um around the time that the analog super nt was coming out i was kind of looking maybe i'd get one 
Um, I had already looked at the mist a little bit before that and thought, ah. And then I, I decided, I think, that if the... I'd wait for it to come out, and if it had support for all the cores that the Mini and T had, then I'd get one. Hmm. And so I waited for it to come out, and it never had the rest of those cores. So I said, ah, maybe I'll keep looking around. And I, I started looking through things and, and came across the Mister. And that, uh, at the time, I think was... I think the D10 Nano was only 100 bucks, and the memory was only 30 and so it was even considerably cheaper than just a single standalone console, so mm-hmm. it was a pretty good deal. And then I just thinking to myself, you know, I could probably figure out how to fix things that I, to make this work better if I'm not satisfied with the way that it works. And I, and I said this having never touched HDL before, so <laughs> it might have been a little, uh, a little presumptuous of me, but... Uh, um, I, I did decide to go ahead and get one, and it was a uh, uh, first thing that I noticed about it was well, obviously I'm going to go for the NES first because that's that's the one that I grew up with and was most interested in. And sure enough, there's no saves to play Zelda, and that just that's just not right. <laughs> so, um, uh, over the course of you know a week or two, I started um, looking at the uh, at how I could put this this save in there. So. I started by just grabbing a an emulator, creating a save, and then was looking at how I could get that memory into the core so that it could run with it. So that's the first step, is just being able to get the memory into the thing. And so it, that leads you into to starting to understand about how a uh, an FPGA works and how it's different from programming. So mm-hmm. I've been doing all this programming all, um, for since I was a kid, and I, I guess the main thing that I, I would think about um, HDL is that it's uh, it's basically states. If you can put wrap your mind around everything happening in a state and transferring from, from one state to the next, everything happens on that transition. And so if you can put your mind around that transition, and that transition happens, like I like to think of um, uh, Ben-Hur. I, I don't know, there's the scene where he's on the, on the boat and the, the guy says, Roll, uh, we keep you alive to serve this ship. Roll, roll well and live. And so that you've got the guy in the background with the big drums going boom, boom, mm-hmm. boom, boom. And so I, I kind of think about um, this HDL running with its clock. And on every beat of that drum, you have to have your row in the right spot. And if you can get your row to the right spot and then push the row to the... Um, you'll know where it is at that position. And then on the next um, drum beat, um, you base where you're going to be on the next one on where you're at when that last drum beat happened. Um, so you just think about um, the transition from drum beat to drum beat is where, um, if you want to know what you do next, you like if you have an add instruction, you need to look at what the state of that um, of your number was on the last drum beat and use that one only, and then jump to the next drum beat. And then anywhere where that uses that same value, it's it's a it, it happens on the clock. So just think about. Um, uh, keeping track of things in a way where it's on the drum beat is where the changes happen. If you want to look up a, a, for where something is to calculate where it's going to be at the next drum beat, use it at the, the, the last one. Um, and, and so um, I, I start thinking about, okay, I need to design a state machine. And for me, the easiest way to do it was um, if I think about how I want to do this in like a programming language, it's, it's just a for loop where it's like, take the memory, put it where you want it in the address, and add one to everything, and then go to the next one. So these these state machines are all um, 
But all I have to do is say, okay, here's a state where I need to um, increment the address by one. Here's a state where I need to um, copy the data. And here's the state where I tell it to go back to the previous state to do the next one. And so you just write um, a simple state machine that basically executes the same thing as a for loop. And each state is a member of that, is basically a line of code. And after debugging that for a while, it worked. And there, there was a, a save for Zelda showing up. Nice. So that, that was my introduction to HDL was in her. <laughs> <laughs> Quite a trip. And uh, what about you, Dave? Getting into mystery. Well, um, I got to go back a few years. Um, it's one of these things I was, um, when I was writing emulators, it, it was always, it's a race against time. In, or at least it was on the machines of that era. <clears throat> so you, you can imagine the emulator can do anything as long as it has a sufficiently fast CPU. And sometimes that means, you know, really, really fast. I'm not talking about the operating system um, additional restraints, but, um, you know, but I, I, I knew that if you could build a circuit, it'd be great. I had heard of CPLDs and FPGAs. I didn't know anything about them for years. Somewhere in the early 2010 decade, I knew of a couple of people who were doing FPGA projects. They're mostly Japanese people um, doing FPGA stuff for hobbies. Uh, one guy, Kentaro Ishihara, he, uh, he did several arcade uh, boards, but they were on you know, very, uh, I don't even know what kind of a, a system it was. He Maybe he was just building it out of a, a, a Cyclone 2 uh, FPGA and uh, on, a, on a proto board. Um, but um, I, I knew I wanted to get into it. I had no idea how. And I had heard of one chip MSX. I had heard of, of MIST over those years. And I just never really got into it. 2018 was a turning point. Um, I had just finished a, a long contract and I took some well-deserved time off in uh, in Japan in the summer and uh, I started to do some reading and I poked around and I was looking and and uh, like FPGAs was that was like the year of FPGAs on consoles as far as I was concerned at least you know you had the uh, um, Terra Onion came out with their SSDS3 mm -hmm. right you had um, Mister was starting to gain some some attention. It got my attention uh, some somewhere early in the year, not enough to get into it yet. And then there was a a device in Japan called Upper Graphics mm -hmm. that that was uh, you know very similar. Did a bunch of of different things and and output to HDMI. And I I actually met the guy who um, who built that. And I had been doing some some uh, some study at that time of the CD-ROM timings, and I, I, I spoke with him. I said, how would you like to integrate this stuff in? It'll probably solve a couple of your uh, your lingering bugs, like F1 team simulation, which at the very beginning of the of the program, it comes out with a, with a, a horn honk, and then this really nasty noise, which is, it happens because it's playing ADPCM, um, and... Uh, and then if the CD-ROM responds too quickly and gives it new information, it hasn't finished playing the sample, and, and now you're corrupting the sample. Mm. And, uh, and that happened 
there's probably a half a dozen games that have that problem. So I gave him the code, and we we were testing and adjusting and so on. And I thought it was really cool. And I, it, you know, this work it was all volunteer on my side. I was just helping the guy. It uh, it kind of inspired me. Here's a guy, and and especially in the context of Japan, it was it was really shocking. You know, this guy he quit his job. He um, he decided that he wanted to make a device and support himself off of that, right? Uh, un unbelievable. I mean, that's very difficult in any in any mm -hmm. society, but in in Japan, it's unthinkable. And here's a guy with a, with a lot of uh, of guts. So I thought that was really cool, and it inspired me. And I thought, you know, maybe I'll get back into electronics a little bit. Uh, things are more accessible now. I should get myself a proper soldering iron instead of that fire stick from 40 years ago um and uh and so i started to ease myself into arduino stuff and and i got a, a mister around christmas of 2018 but not really a mister but a bunch of blank boards because everything was in short supply at that time and i said i'm gonna build this myself and uh i managed to do it it was harder than i thought it would be but i had no skills <laughs> right so i built those skills and I, I wouldn't be too concerned about doing it again now but it's not something i would want to do for other people mm -hmm. uh mr the coding i mean of course it had a turbo graphics core and by the way that's it should be called pc engine <laughs> um but anyway it's it's got that core and at that time, uh, it still had some of the uh, the items that Eric was mentioning earlier, the Wonder Momo and some of the other things. And I thought, okay, uh, let me let me tinker with this. And of course, um, I was able to fix some things, but I also broke some things because there was that missing information. But just tinkering, uh, as as Eric said, just tinkering is exactly what you need as as a starting HDL coder. Right, I've been I've been programming computers for decades. Um, how hard can HDL be? Well, it can be hard, but it's just another language. It's just another way of thinking. Um, if you're a developer and you can't learn something new, what good are you? Sorry, if I was a little harsh. No, it's that. it's <laughs> it's just a painful process, right? But let's be empathetic about it. I mean, yeah, you you need to do that. But it's hard to bootstrap yourself and. Oh yeah, yeah. No, this is this is a paradigm shift, definitely. Yeah. I mean, it's it's not something you can pick up in a day, and and like, let's make that clear. But it's, it's painful. <laughs> but it's not going to happen if you keep putting it off either. Yeah, I, so, I need to so go start... that way someday. <laughs> well, uh, you know, the best place to start is 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 find a bug that's really bothering you that you think you know how to fix. <laughs> okay, and and then work to fix it now in mister there's a bunch of things that are kind of voodoo black magic um that that i you know maybe nobody knows about honestly you know i, I was talking with uh, with kitrinks last night about a behavior that the scaler has on hdmi when when the uh, the resolution changes there's a flash of junk that comes up and i saw this on the the uh, east book one and two title screen and it it's just a minor annoyance. It's just a flash for like one frame, but it's enough to bother me, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, but you know, that's that's sort of voodoo black magic. Uh, nobody goes into the scaler 
kind of a thing, right? Um, and the communication between the system on a chip and the FPGA backend, um, that's, that's something that takes a fair bit of, of digestion. Um, one of the things, and as a, as a software developer, one of the things that I've noticed, and this is not unique to Mr. This is on every FPGA project I've ever seen. It's like, it's like the 1980s, you know, every variable is like X, X1, CE, Q, and, uh, and there's no comments. And uh, this is driving me crazy. So keep that in mind. And uh, and please be nice and 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 add comments. Like if <laughs> if you're if you're doing something that, okay, if somebody knows what you're doing, it's easy to figure out why you're you're choosing that value. Great, but at least tell them what you're trying to do. So I try to do that whenever I'm writing something. Um, a core that I wrote uh, for my own benefit, but also for the benefit of others, is the ADC test. What I took, I took the uh, the template core and I made minimal changes to it, but I commented what I did um, as much as I thought reasonable. And what it does, it's just kind of a <clears throat> really primitive oscilloscope based on what you see on the ADC. So if you're playing like a cassette um, into into a core, you might remember from the old days playing a cassette into an old computer. Uh, getting the volume level right was a big deal. So, and you could never visualize it back then. So I wrote ADC tests so we could kind of say, yeah, is there is a volume in, a, in an acceptable range before I play it back into my computer core and stuff like that. Yeah, and it's important because if you saturate, you, you create harmonics that destroys everything, right? Uh, yeah, yeah. And if you don't reach the threshold in the first place, it's not going to detect anything. Yeah. So it's it's a strange, and uh, yeah, comments are a big part. Uh, I, I sometimes browse. Um, I browse the main source code a lot, to be honest. And sometimes you see amazing documentation in there that's like another world for a PCB board, right? The only way to fix it is there, and sometimes it's just the the memory mapping, and that's it. But it's it's hard getting good documentation. It, it's hard. Well, and. And it's never consistent on a big project. No, and uh, when you're hacking into something, it's the last thing you want to deal with. But we, we need to do that, right, as developers? I, yeah, I think so. I mean, if, if we're hoping for other people to join us and, and, and also write cool stuff, uh, I mean, it's our obligation. It's uh, the same. We, we've all seen that happen to ourselves as developers. You go back to a project 10 years old by yourself, and you need to understand yourself, and that's not easy. Well, that's that's how I learned that it was a a good thing to do. Yeah. Of course, I it was reinforced working at a bank with a you know a team, um, many of whom really needed a lot of things described in in great detail. But you know, uh, that's what makes the world go round. There's a lot of variation among people, and we need we need to kind of make it clear. Yeah. And uh, one of the machines that did use a cassette, I believe, is the Atom. And uh, the Atom is uh, ColecoVision, and you started with the ColecoVision, right, Eric? Uh, no, I, I um, well, sort of. Um, the uh, the TI-99 4A that I mentioned is kind of my first computer, was 
kind of another motivating thing for me to get the Mister was just because I wanted a TI ninety nine core, mm-hmm. and I figured the only way that I could get one was to write one myself. But I didn't want to start with um, writing a whole core from scratch, which is why I started doing some simple things with the mm-hmm. NES core. So adding saves, and then there, there was this other um, audio bug where it wasn't playing high notes, and um, like the fix for that was pretty pretty simple if you understand the logic of how the bug was introduced. Um, so if you think about it and say, um, if you're writing something that says, tell me yes or no if this number is greater than or equal to 10. And you say, well, one way to do that is just to say, are there any digits past the first one to the left of the first digit that isn't z- zero? Mm-hmm. But that's kind of easier than, than saying in, a, in a, on a CPU, the only other way to do that is to subtract. Mm-hmm. You say the number that you've got and you subtract 10 and you say, is that number greater than or less than zero when you're done subtracting? But it's easier and simpler in logic to just say, I have any digits to the left that are not zero. And so if you look at, at what this bug is, it's um, they had gone in and done the equivalent of saying, it needed to say, is this greater than or equal to 10? And so they said, oh, I'll just count the, the number of digits to the left if it's more than one. And so they dropped the right digit but then they kept the greater than or equal to 10. So basically that turns into a greater than or equal to 100. Hmm. If, if you can, yeah, if you think about how that works, you, mm-hmm. you, you did the greater than or equal to 10. And then you say, Oh, is the tens is the numbers that are um, dropped a digit greater than or equal to 10. You've actually now said, is that number greater than or equal to a hundred? That's why all of the high notes on the NES at one point were missing. It's because there's this, it, it cuts it off after a certain high frequency, but they had, they had outthought themselves. They had simplified it and then kept the original harder way of doing it and combined it into one broken thing. Hmm. But, but I, I'm, I'm still grateful for, for um, that, this, the NES core, I think, was originally by uh, Strigius, the uh, FPGA NES core that got ported to the Mist and then to the Mister. I'm still grateful for people that had done that because um, then it gives me something simple that I can look at for bugs that I can get my way around HDL started understanding how it works and making improvements here and there. So... Anyway, after that one, um, like I said, I had wanted a TI-99 core, and I still didn't think I was ready to write one, but at that point, I found that somebody else had already created one for a different FPGA, um, and that's um, Speckery, um, uh, also known as Eric Peel, had uh, created this TI-99 core that already existed, and I thought, well, maybe porting something isn't as bad as trying to create one from scratch, and, and then I started looking around and, and realizing that the chips that the... Um, TI-99-4A uses, the audio and the video are the exact same chips that are used in ColecoVision and in uh, Sega SG-1000. If you, um, those two systems are almost identical. Not only do they share those video and audio chips, they also say, have the same Z80 processor. The only really mm-hmm. difference is how they're wired up. Um, so recognizing that the ColecoVision have the same audio and video as the um, TI-99... And the hardest part of hooking up a new core, um, are there's three things. One is the audio. <laughs> Two, well, well, not not in order. One is the audio. Two is the video, and three is the the RAM, the memory. Those are the three hardest things to hook up. And because the ColecoVision already existed at this point, um, all I had to do was go in and say, replace the CPU and replace the cl- um, connecting logic. And because the TI-99 used such little amount of memory, 
I could use the uh, block RAM that's built into the FPGA without having to mess with the mm. SD RAM or the DDR, which are uh, more complicated to deal with. So because the, these chips are all the, the same and already existed in the thing, I could have used Eric Peel's um, version of the audio and video as well, but it was easier to just leave the one that was already connected to Mr. had all the signals going where they're supposed to go. The audio is already hooked up. The video is already hooked up. All you have to do is swap out the CPU and fix the connecting logic that, that did come directly from Eric Peel's version. And it worked faster than it should have. I, I, I would have expected it to have had problems, but it came up pretty quickly. So Nice. The only, the only part of it that was hard at the time was that this was back before the scaler that, that Dave was talking about, before Gribulosari had implemented that thing. And that meant that all of the cores that you were building without the, if you didn't have a license, if you had the light version, only ran for an hour. Um, and then you, and then they would blank the video on you. Or, or you could run it with um, the I.O. board. That still worked without a time limit. But I didn't have one of those at the time. Although, um, big thumbs up to Alan for... I mentioned that at some point when I was working working on the NES core, I think, or maybe it was on the TI-99. Anyway, he, he sent me a, an I.O. board, so big thanks to Alan for nice. saving me countless hours of debugging <laughs> with the, the light one. But yeah, the, yeah. Um, I think Alan was just... Uh, Alan's done a lot for the community. He's he's really pulled a lot of us together, I think. Yeah. Yeah, that's for sure. So anyway, that it really helps that a lot of these um, systems use a lot of the same... Uh, chips and that we can reuse them and then I did actually end up while I was working on the T99 find a bug in the sprite processing on that video chip and so that can then go back and fix the same thing in the ColecoVision and the SG1000. A sprite um, issue right? Sprite issue yeah there was a oh it's it's minor like it only shows up in um, I think like the one game in the, on a TI99 that I found where it relies on the way that what happens when the number of sprite overflows Per line, per line. Mm-hmm. I think it's per line that where it overflows, and then it, but the number that it returns in a register is different than what the existing implementation of that chip said. And so when I fixed that in, in the on the TI ninety nine game, I could push that out to the ColecoVision and SG one thousand core. Good. Several several things at once. <laughs> yeah. And from that, you jumped into the Turbo Graphics PC engine. Yeah. Um, so once I had the TI ninety nine working my my next thought is what can i do with minimal effort that would have some effect <laughs> uh I, i'm like that I, I maximum bang for my buck what what can i do that will i won't have to spend a lot of time and get some immediate positive uh feedback and so i um dave mentioned that there isn't um mappers for the uh, uh ac engine except for street fighter mm-hmm. um but there is some com- some complexity in the way that it handles some of these smaller games, like the ones that are three quarters of the size and the ones that are like three eighths of a size. Um, way that it, it maps those is a little non-intuitive. And it turns out that in, so the core, again, this one was, was originally, that was originally written by Torless, um, um, had this, this problem. And I, and there was a, a bug reported that showed a lot of the games and I was looking through this list and, and noticing that a lot of them are the same size, and they happen to be these three-quarter size games or these three-eighth size games, and so I was like, "Hmm, this sounds a lot like the the issue where um, of that main game, the uh, Hot Rod that I was talking about before." Mm-hmm. It sounds like this is a, this might be a, a thing to look at because I can imagine that 
because these are all the same size games that are failing, I could go look and see um, if it's doing the logic there correctly. And sure enough, there was a problem with the way that it handled. First of all, Street Fighter Two wasn't quite right, and then all of these kind of in-between size games weren't mapped correctly. And so a couple of lines of code, and all of a sudden you've got 50 more games that are booting up and running. Nice. And it's just kind of, well, yay, easy fix. All these things didn't take very long. Fun. Fun, fun, fun. <laughs> and then you get hooked on it, and you do it for several more months instead of moving on to something else. So, <laughs> Speaking of which, uh, you worked on a compiler to build games after what you early, uh, told us earlier, uh, Dave. And uh, this, this compiler generates uh, the ROM sizes that can fit into these non-standard or intermediate sizes, right? What can you tell us about this compiler? Well, um, yeah, in the in the late '90s, there was really three the three emulator authors, we'll say, for the PC Engine. We had David Michel, we had Olivier Jolly, who was known as Zeograd at that time, and myself. I mean, I gave up on my emulator the first of the three, but uh, but we were all still questing to know more about the system. And uh, David Michel, he had somehow found a, uh, a 6502 assembler, or maybe he wrote it. Um, and that's how he was running some tests on, on the system to, uh, to get more information to, uh, to improve his, his, uh, his emulator. But he, he said, you know what would be really cool is uh, I found this, this C compiler from the 80s. No attribution. We don't know where it came from. But um, I, I was toying around with uh, with adding a few little bits onto it, and I think I can get uh, PC Engine stuff coming out. So um, so we we worked the three of us uh, on on Hue C to uh, to try and see. Well, you know, uh, it was from the beginning a a story of trying to write a game, trying to get something out there, and so people could write their own stuff and and uh, be creative and. Uh, you know, I, I spent a lot of time working on the uh, the startup, the, the the library for the mm. uh, the system, so that it would dual boot either uh, either Hue card or uh, or CD-ROM. Um, a lot of time on on optimization of speed. Now, anybody who thinks that C is going to go well on an 8-bit processor, you got to think two problems with C. Uh, I don't really want to necessarily go too technical, but C is a very stack-based language, and on a uh, a 6502 stack is not that fast. And the uh, second thing is int. What's the size of your int? Well, if if they had declared int to be eight bits, it would have been great, but <laughs> but it's not. So everything was well, let's let's try and use A and X together in this way and swap and 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 add and we'll make macros and so it was really kind of slow but you know you could write stuff really quick it just wouldn't run really quick now having said that there's probably about 12 or 15 games that have been released like uh you know professionally pressed um on the system since the year 2000 or so um, that uh, I think all of them are using uh, Hue-C as their basis. So I guess it went somewhere. Yeah, sure it did. It's, um, I believe it's an amazing tool, and uh, it brings a lot of power to the community that goes around into trying to figure out stuff from inside the console uh, so that it can be properly documented. 
in, in so many ways, right? When you're developing this, when you're creating these tools and, and these simulators, and later on for, for testing stuff from inside the machine. Yeah, when I, when I use QC, I, I mean, I don't use it very much, but I'm, I'm writing little test programs and, and it's really fast to get a scaffolding up to start displaying text on the screen. Whereas if you were doing that in assembler, it would be excruciating. But the, the cool part about it is you can just make some inline assembler and, mm-hmm. and, uh, and that's probably, yeah, it's probably 60% of my programs when I'm writing. Yeah, you get bootstrapped and then you can do stuff inside. Mm-hmm. Nice. Uh, and I, I know that you uh, you did some some work on QC at a later stage. Yeah, way later, way later, like uh, sixteen years after you had worked on it. I uh, I, I figured out uh, just uh, just like Eric was saying. Uh, I I wanted the two free pets the two free pita suite. That's some software I, I I've created in the past. And uh, it, it was created in QC for the version of PC Engine, of course. And I wanted it to run on every single variant or version. So I made a CD-ROM version because it was easier to find a CD-ROM and burn it eight years ago than to get a flashcard. And uh, that would open the, the door to have access to this CRT and scalar calibration tools. So I used QC and uh, I, I made a CD-ROM version and a super CD-ROM version so that it would work on either. But working on the CD-ROM versions, I, I noticed that I, I simply ran out of banks way too soon. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it was because whenever a bank was partially full or a function name or data wouldn't fit into the, the next bank, it simply opened a new bank and, uh, and, and started making one. And, you run out of banks too soon. So yeah. I went into this uh, trying to fix it. And obviously it's an MP complete problem to try to fit data in, into standard bins. But there are approximations. So I, I worked that into the, the compiler so that you get an approximation of a decent enough solution to pack everything into each one of these bins. That's the kind of thing oh. that I was working on on, on QC and... Uh, uh, not 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 anything not anything big, but it it can help some CD-ROM projects. For but sure. I I love working on the PC Engine and, and QC. It's a great system. Yeah, yeah, it is. And uh, thing is that uh, the PC Engine and the Turbo Graphics have uh, improved a lot in the last uh, two years on on Mister. Thanks to to both of you guys, right? Well, I, I was saying the other day. I know that. Uh... We we both played with the the version the 2019 version uh, when SRG 320 uh, Sergey came up with the the new version uh, it was it was like like the veil had lifted just a, a masterpiece uh, it's I look at that that core and I say that's that's SRG 320 and and uh, and Sorgalig's core i'm just waxing the car and, and vacuuming the inside <laughs> so, yeah i i uh i remember back then when i was working on it i i got those games to work all of a sudden and then i had started working on some of the like there was a cpu bug about um i don't remember the specific something where the, the where it was handling the interrupt and it didn't handle it at the exact right time inside the cpu and i adjusted like something like that and 
that would fix some things, and then and then I started trying to to work on <laughs> on the video a little bit, and we get back into the same thing where it's um okay, I, I fixed it, and then I go and I try up the next game that I want to fix, and oh, I fixed it. Oh wait, I broke the last one, and you get into this cycle again where you where you you fix some things and then you break some things. With I remember specifically the two things that um really were stopping me from making any progress were um again the those like uh, Dave was talking about those weight states on like memory access and whatever are are super important and I didn't didn't know what they were didn't have hardware to go test them and <clears throat> probably didn't have the motivation either but it it, uh, it was um, um, that and then the timing on the um, what is it the RCR IRQ or whatever that thing was called the the, the oh, th there's R a couple of IRQs that you have to yeah the the IRQ two is the uh... It, it, it's shared between the V-Blank and the uh, raster counter. Yeah, the raster counter. The, that raster counter IRQ trying to figure out exactly when that fired. and I couldn't figure it out. It, so I, I, I'd go through and I'd fix some, trying to time it right and breaking some. And then it got to the point where I, I had fixed, you know, a lot more games were running than were before. And I think that um, that had suddenly got Sorgalig's interest a little bit. And so he started trying to fix some things too. And... Uh, um, and he then decided that all of a sudden he'd go make the super graphics worked work, and that that was pretty cool. It was like, oh, that's the point where I think people really um, started to get a little bit excited about it. Was when all of a sudden, ooh, super graphics. Um, but uh, it was funny because um, so I'd gone through the cycle of fixing games and breaking them. Sorgalig had gone and done the super graphics, and then he was also trying to do the same thing where he was fixing games. And it, I think there's there's a certain if you go looking at the GitHub, there's probably a certain spot where you'll notice some games are mentioned being fixed multiple times, where I would go through the circle fixing and breaking, fixing and breaking, and then Sorkle went through that same circle, <laughs> fixing games, breaking them, fixing them, breaking them, um, where you, because you just don't have the timings, you just don't know the right way to fix it, you, you just never get there. And so yeah, the the eventual. Um, work that uh, SRG320 did on there to actually figure out what those right values are means that you no longer have to go in circles. And this goes back to, to one of the main ideas that we've been talking about, that it's documentation from the canonical source, right? Because you, you don't know if somebody will write some software in 10 years and uh, it won't work on real hardware, but will work on emulators, right? Only with documentation you, ha you can do this. And, and with proper uh, canonical documentation from the hardware. Oh, exactly. I mean, everything that, that I learn about the system, I make public. I, I want emulator people to include it in their emulators. I want to put it into all the FPGA systems. I, I want all of these systems to look the same, really. And, and there's no really good reason other than motivation why they shouldn't be. At this point in time, with, with the amount of power that's available on on computers with uh, with the amount of, of power that's available in, in FPGAs. Yeah, which is uh, also circular in, in terms of if, if we can document it and as a whole community get it better everywhere, then these mistakes won't be replicated or this information can be spread everywhere, right? Yeah, I think on, on the PC Engine, one thing that we're a little bit light on in general uh, Chris Covell's written a bunch of really good mm -hmm. testers, like yes. um, things that, that you can run to to validate that your CPU runs three cycles for all of the, the three cycle uh, um, opcodes, for example. Um, 
but yeah, he's probably coded for about 10% of the uh, of the actual system. And I don't think really anybody else has written stuff like that. Whereas I've I've heard of lots of test programs for uh, for machines like the NES and the SNES. I agree. Uh, Chris's work has been uh, pivotal and uh, fundamental for for a lot of this work because he he thought about so many things, right? Mm-hmm. And uh, regarding Mister, uh, it, it's also interesting that uh, the analog out from from this core and from many cores is uh, so close to to the real one. Yeah, that was an. You want to talk about the palette from last summer? Yeah, it, it would be interesting. Do you know about the palette changes that were made, Eric? I do actually. Uh, I, when I was like, I had been working on it, like I said, in uh, around that time when back back when, and uh, I had seen in the documentation where it said that there was a, uh, you know, this this translation layer that happens between composite or between RGB and composite, and there's this tantalizingly small table in the document that I saw that has like. Two lines, dot dot dot, and then the last two lines. Yeah, that's the and then I was like, <laughs> yeah, and the patent. And you go look at that, and you're like, oh, where's the rest of it? <laughs> and so I had just seen it, but I was like, and then I glanced at it, say, oh, I don't see an obvious pattern, and so I moved on. <laughs> so that, that was so my f- exposure to it. Yeah, the first time I heard about this was maybe 2015, and and it was from a couple of people who made some oblique comment. Oh, the RGB isn't quite right and i didn't know what they were talking about and i i thought ah you guys are just pulling yes. my leg you're just jealous that we have rgb and you have composite <laughs> but uh, i was i was i was playing on a computer at the time <laughs> let me let me use this uh, uh this moment because I, I i interrupted you but if somebody in the audience right now wants to ask questions just send them to the chat and we'll work through them but meanwhile we'll continue with this story sorry for interruption Dave. No, no problem. So actually, one of the people who had told me way back when was, uh, uh, he's had so many handles over the years, but he's calling himself Turbo X-Ray these days. Um, and last summer, he presented me with a screenshot that was irrefutable. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And it was a, a game called uh, Startling Odyssey 2. And I had never seen this comparison before. And I thought, oh my God, it's true. So uh, then I, uh, like project manager, because that's, that's what I do these days, I, I decided to gather the groups. So I put it on Twitter and I said, I learned today that RGB that we've been using all these years is not right. And of course, you know, gasps of dismay. Oh, you're full of it. These kinds of, of, uh, of comments and, and queries. But it, it certainly got people thinking. And uh, Vertec. Mm-hmm. Who uh, who does decapping? Um, we I'm not sure where he got the chips from anymore, but he had uh, he had decapped a couple of chips, and uh, he has his own microscope, and he was doing some tracing out, and and uh, the 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 standard cells inside of the uh, these chips are not that easy to decode. But I, I said, you know, do you have any idea? Can do we have something on the uh, the 6260 that we can we can try to figure out what this this decode table is because we had the picture we had the patent that as as eric says so tantalizingly teases us mm-hmm. that it has some information 
and uh it was it was just a few hours like this guy was a genius he he was playing with test pins and trying to to i don't know how he figured it out but uh but he he managed to read the rom of the colors he wrote a little program that that would display all the different colors and he would read from the rom at the time when the when when the uh uh, that color was being displayed and he would find that it was a different value than he originally thought. And he says, Oh, this must be the value. So he looked it up and he compared it against the, uh, the values that were listed in the uh, patent. And he says, yeah, this is your table, I think. So can you, can you check it out? And, uh, and so we started playing with that. And, uh, and then Artemio, we went on your, on your, uh, your discord talking about 240p and uh, man it was a big team uh, i think trinks was doing all the this this math transformation sultan g42 was was also talking about that turbo x-ray was there uh, i wrote a test program turbo x-ray wrote a test program mm -hmm. you you had all your your uh, um, vector scopes out testing trying different variations uh, and you know, it was one of those things where we're not quite sure what we're looking for. So we went down about 250 different avenues. It's, it's interesting because everybody brought a different, uh, way of dealing with the issue, uh, from their own background, right? There, there was, uh, Tianfong, it, it also, uh, Bernard was, uh, using digital oscilloscopes and, and because his background is on video and Katrinix wrote this, uh, software oscilloscope to decode the images from from the frame buffer or or from any any screen capture sorry and uh and it, we were measuring different systems with with your test programs on the vector scope and checking how they match the standards and uh this this is a small game this uh it, it was so obvious just as you say how the bands in the sky uh were lost when using rgb that uh, it, it was such uh, an interesting time to be working on that because it seemed to me that every one of us was day and night, every single uh, hobby hour that we have, we put into that. And it felt so, um, I don't know, uh, magical in the sense that we were carrying each other into this uh, vortex of collaboration. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that went on for about six weeks, didn't it? Oh, I think so, or even a bit more. But yeah, that kind of, of of time frame. But yeah, I mean, it's it's finding the solutions to those problems is really exhilarating. I think. But the thing is that Mister was uh, uh, the the place where this could be accommodated, and and where where they would pay attention to this detail for an an implementation and and uh, the proper um, decoding of the information, right? Oh, absolutely. It's um, it's funny, you know. You get these communities of around emulators, I think, and at a certain point, they become a little bit more brittle, yeah. right? Um, I, I worked very, very much with the uh, the the author of Mednaf and about a decade ago, and uh, we had a kind of a collaboration going on on IRC. But when IRC kind of went the way of the dodo, uh, it's like I, I lost my ability to contribute to that project. So when I come up with with the the CD delays, mm -hmm. the, you know the, that information just didn't get integrated. 
um, and, and other things didn't get integrated. But they, they already knew that this pallet was coming. So they had built a, a back door for it. So, you know, I'm not sure how they knew that the pallet was coming. I guess they, <laughs> they just kind of forecast it. Yeah, but it, it's, it's fortunate that it did. And, uh, well, the result was this awesome pallet that's the default for the core. And you can also load any custom pallets because it's, it's possible. And the option is there. And you can also get the RGB pallet if you want to, right? And, sw and switch between them and see how they differ on the mystery. And uh, uh, thankfully, uh, in many other devices today, which is good. It's really good. Mm -hmm. And on the same... I always wonder how many of those, um, of the ones that actually work on real hardware that also implement the black and white on there. Mm, yeah. I don't know how common that is for hardware. Do you, any, do you guys know that? Like, there is that black and white yes. switch that you can turn on, which on the composite will turn off the color carrier so you get black and white. I'm curious how many of the of RGB on the actual uh, hardware implement that. You mean, uh, oh, of the emulators, or you mean the standard game set? Yeah, like he means the, the hardware mods, I guess. Yeah, the ones that give you RGB out of the actual hardware. Oh, yeah, I'm, I'm... I wonder how many of those actually implement that. Pretty sure it's probably zero. Um, I, I should be able to answer that, and, but I, I don't remember, because I tested that, but it was like eight years ago when, when I oh, quoted okay. the switch. I didn't, it was one of the other weird things that I'd implemented in the core was adding that black and white, and because of the way it works, while I was looking at it, I wondered how many of the actual hardware mods actually... I'll, I'll confirm account. that for you uh, when we finish the tr the transmission, okay. because I, I have several mods here, and uh, I coded that into the suite as, a, as an option, so it's easy to test. Uh, I I don't remember, I, and I and it's weird that I don't remember if if it changed. I think it it never changes in RGB, but that's my my memory. There's at least one game that. Um Bailey's? I, I I think it uh, like it does like a black and white photo or something like that. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's, it's, it's a Bailey's very it's song, it's right? it's not an important scene, but yes, I think I I recall hearing about that. Yeah, I can't uh, remember which game it is though. And uh, the PC engine also has several other other things like that filter that uh, makes uh, composite output uh, not flicker as much, right? Yes. Yeah. So um, that one, what it does on the composite output and there's another patent that deals with that um it offsets the start of line by a fraction of a pixel on alternating fields mm -hmm. um so in other words you know you get 60 fields per second not 60 frames it's 30 frames per second um and on alternating fields you get alternating lines so these alternating lines wouldn't be exactly aligned They'd be slightly jagged, mm -hmm. but that that would actually create a, uh, a, a kind of uh, an interference against slightly pink or slightly blue at the edge. Yeah, it reduces the noise basically, mm -hmm. because the, the interference that Dave is talking about is created by the the carrier, and mm -hmm. uh, and, and it cleans up in, in in a magical way, cancels out that kind of interference. Exactly. Yeah, I think Mike Chi worked some magic with that on the RetroThink. I, I need to check that. I heard that the 5X is, is mm -hmm. like amazing. I, 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 ha 
I haven't got one myself though. Yeah, Mike Mike did go into the, the chat a bit to help us out decoding with MATLAB the the composite uh, values for the palette as well. <clears throat> yeah, so uh, also uh, on, on terms of PC Engine, I, I recall that when, when I got my mystery, I reported uh, some kind of offsets comparing switching fastly in, in a PBM between the PC Engine and the core, and those were like uh, quickly fixed. Uh, like also the bottom line, line 240, is never drawn on hardware, only up to 239, and Mr. was drawing it, and when we documented it, reported it with oscilloscope output and everything, it was fixed in a matter of less than a week. And that was amazing. Yeah, especially just after the, the release, mm -hmm. everything was like hours. Yeah. And uh, I mean, I, I want the core to be perfect <laughs> for my own reasons. And maybe, maybe I should make this statement. I, I'm, I'm not doing this for other people. I'm doing this for myself. <laughs> but everybody can, can share in the benefits. Of course. <laughs> uh, and I think that's the way that things usually work for every one of us. Right, Eric? Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I, do, I do it for myself more than I, I... I absolutely want other people to enjoy it. But mm -hmm. I, uh, I'm doing it mainly for me. It's fun. And, and it's the, the, also the same reason that I built MD4E. I was interested in fixing stuff so that people that said that the Genesis sounded bad would at least compare it to a real sounding Genesis before making that opinion. Because mm -hmm. most emulators didn't or don't uh, have the, the proper FN sound, right? And But that's it. It's, it's basically... A, um, a personal reason that you can extrapolate to others and get the ball rolling and it becomes very interesting when a community is also interested in this, right? Mm -hmm. And Flamesbit, hey, hey, Flamesbit, uh, asks us if, uh, what's your favorite PC Engine game or games? Guilty Pleasure? And do you still play or spend all your time tinkering and fixing bugs? I, I guess this is for me. <laughs> well, we, well the, the second part of the question, we can still ask uh, Eric. Please ask sure. first, Dave. Well, my, my, my first and always love of a game is East Book 1 and 2. Mm. Uh, it was magical when I first saw it, and I, I'm actually playing through it right now. Um, I should mention that uh, I'm trying to make my way through as much of the PC Engine library on the Mr. Core as possible to try and see if there's any additional bugs. Um, but yeah, East 1 and 2 and East 4, the uh, English translation, my, my favorites. Um, guilty pleasure. Yeah, I don't think I have a guilty pleasure on it. I mean, okay, maybe, maybe any shooter. I'm terrible at shooters, but I love them. <laughs> and uh, do I still play or spend all my time tinkering? Well, you know what? Over the last 30 years, I probably spent tons more time tinkering and collecting than playing, but I've been getting back into playing a little bit more lately. That's good. Is one and two was also my first PC Engine game. I bought it and I didn't have a, a Turbo Graphics, but I, I I kept it and uh, I made some fan art and, and drawings and imagined how good it would be. And it was like you, you wouldn't believe this, but I bought my Magic Engine license to play that game and Snatcher and. Uh, Later hey, on, I, I, I bought uh, the tour, a Turbo Duo, like one year later, when, when I could. Yeah, I, I believe it totally. <laughs> but I mean, uh, East Book 1 and 2, uh, probably the first 
DD-ROM game that I ever saw, mm. and what an impression it made. Yeah, the the intro is amazing, and the music, and the game, everything. And uh, I, I'm going to move on to to Eric in a minute, but I wanted to ask you: Do you play the new East games, Dave? Is eight? Is nine? Um, you mean the the PC ones? No, or or PS4 or whatever. So, um, yeah, actually, I I I, I love Falcom in yeah. in general, and uh, and I've been buying all of the games, but. Um, I was disappointed in East Six. Okay. But the uh, the other ones, I've I've played bits and pieces of. It's 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 a for me. It's it's usually pretty hard to uh, to find the time to play. Mm. I know they're short games anyway, but uh, the art in them is just so um, so beautiful. Play eight. Do yourself a play favor and play eight. Okay. And nine. I love them. Do that. Okay. <laughs> it, it's I, I was worried that they were getting a little bit, um, you know, repetitious, but I'll, no, no. On, your, on the basis of your recommendation, I'll go out and get them. I love them. Yeah. The East 8 is an extraordinary game, and 9 is an incredible sequel to it. So, sorry about that. Eric, uh, I, I, I know that you probably don't have favorite PC Engine games. If you do, please let us know. But do you still play? Or spend all your time tinkering. Uh, so while I was um, while I was working on it, I did play a few games that I liked. Um, I'm obviously a Zelda fan, so of course I'm going to uh, gravitate towards um, Neotopia. Neotopia, yeah, Neotopia one and two. Um, I think I finished the first one and almost finished the second one. I need to go back and finish that one. Uh, and then just like the the um, comment. Uh, Mikey Vids just said, "Blazing Lasers." It's a it's a great game. I I probably played that one more than anything else, especially because there was a bug in it that was oh. <laughs> But I, but I really liked it because it was it's a fun game. So it is. Um, it is a really fun yeah. game. It's it has a different name in the in the PC engine. Yeah, it's, uh, uh, it's based on a TV show or something or an anime, right? Uh, Gunhead. That's Gunhead. exactly right. And the uh, music is amazing. It's by Compile, but published by Hudson, and, and it was, like, white-labeled. And the uh, stage shade with those bubbles, that's amazing. <laughs> Love that game. I know uh, one of the reasons that uh, Sorgalig was interested in working on that core after I, I started working on it also is because he started playing some of it and found the shooters. I, apparently, he's a big shooters fan, so... Good. I'm also a big shooter fan. I'm terrible at them, but I love them. So I'm not very good at them either, but <laughs> they're fun. They're fun. They are. Um, um, yeah. As far as uh, working or playing more, um, since the guy we got the Mister, I spent way more time uh, improving, fixing, trying to fix, rebreaking, whatever than I've than I spent playing on it actually. And, and a lot of that's just because uh, the actual fixing of bugs is to me. Like Addictive. the best puzzle game ever. <laughs> I was just going to say that. Uh, it's, it's the best puzzle game. I, I mean, you, I, I'm, I'm over here picturing myself like some hard-nosed detective, you know, looking around for clues. We've got the fixes <laughs> in here. What's going wrong? And, and, you know, you get to spend time looking at, logically looking through things, trying to figure out where the, the issue can be. And when you actually find that fix, oh, it's a good feeling. It is. It's a good feeling. <laughs> I I, can t well, I think a lot of people can totally empathize with that. And Flinsbit says that you know you will go back to Kids Courage. Do, do you like Kids Courage? 
me i played it when it first came out but i it's not i don't think it was a very good pack in game yeah it wasn't but it 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 looked pretty that it did yeah well if you wanted to ask me about an unpopular game that i liked uh, i liked b-ball which oh. uh, came over here as uh, chu man fu yeah it, it's an amazing game yeah it was not popular but no but it's it's a it. lot of puzzles it's fun music is good Mm-hmm. And it gets complicated fast, and and there's a strategy. Yes, yeah. It's it's this puzzle game where you are pushing a ball, and you need to get to goals like different color balls to different color rest receptacles, and their enemies. That kind of game, top down, great game. Yeah, yeah. And uh, then uh, Eric, you moved on to Sega Master System. Uh, yeah. I don't have a lot to say about that one because if if you're going to put a Sega Master System in front of me and an NES, I'm <laughs> I'm almost always going to go for the NES. But uh, the one exception that I to that is actually probably um, uh, Golden Axe Warrior. Again, I'm, oh, I'm yeah. a Zelda fan, so Golden Axe Warrior was right up my my alley. So I did start um, adding some fixes for that. Um, added more like extra sprite support on that and fixing games, and then at some point I think um, it turns out that I, I looked around and the Game Gear was remarkably simple to add. It's like you expand the number of bits that you use for the colors, and you add stereo sound and you're done. you got a Game Gear. <laughs> so it was uh, remarkably easy to do, and you know me, an easy win, minimal work, I'm there. So yeah, worked on that for a little while until, again, uh, <laughs> Sort of like started seeing some things over there, and he started testing some things, and then he started fixing things. And so I thought I'd get out of there before I, he started through the same cycle of fixing and breaking things again. So I moved on after that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and uh, I, I love uh, Fantasy Star on, on the Sega Master System and uh, Ghostbusters. I, I kind of grew up with those and the Shinobi port. But yeah, it's a, it's a machine that doesn't get much love because it, it was not quite as remarkable as the PC engine in, in certain ways but it was a stepping stone for the genesis that that would come later on yeah i think that one was originally by uh, FPGA hacks or ben just mm. uh, shout out to the original creators again cuz it's fun to work on this the ones that have already been put out there to go find fixes for is easier for me anyway than starting from scratch and we always need both profiles right yeah, and uh, after that, you moved on to NES. Yeah, I went back to do some more NES stuff. Um, the, the other thing that I, I wanted to mention, specifically person, is Loopy. If you go and look at, at through a lot of the stuff that I added into the NES, an enormous chunk of that is from, uh, I, uh, on the NES Dev forums, goes by Loopy. He's been big into NES simulation for a long time. Mm-hmm. I think he makes the, or did, or still makes, the FDS sticks. Oh, uh, those are buy. those are great. I have yeah. one, and, and man, lifesavers. And a lot of the stuff that he's like that, um, the code that's on that FTS stick, I think, has a lot of. Well, the, the, a lot of the stuff that I took from him was the power pack drivers that he wrote hmm. for different mappers, and so they're all just sitting there. And I'm like, once again, minimal work. Go grab them, fix them up so that they work with the way that the Mister works, and find any fixes for them, and. So a lot of the expansion audio originally came from Loopy. I, I think Katrinks went through and uh, fixed, like the FDS was was 
um, got some better documentation later on, and I think she went and fixed that one. And there's there's some other ones that she both that we we both kind of worked on, but she she did a lot of that too. Um, where, where you get the expansion audio from originally, though, those were yeah, a lot, lot of it came about quickly because of Loopy and his open sourced uh, mappers for the power pack. That's awesome. It it, it helps and, everybody. Uh, yep. Yep. Having that, and also, as you said, Trinix uh, has done a lot of work as well in, on, on several areas regarding the NES core. And you, you did fixes even to the CPU and PPU, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, the, the actual um, FPGA... Uh, actually, I, don't, I didn't write that one down. I should have. Whoever the, the 6502 core is, is pretty well vetted. It's been through a lot. I guess more than one person actually, so a lot of people should be credited, I guess. But even in there, there I found some places where there were reset differences. I think mainly in the CPU. I know one of those I fixed, and then I don't think it got pushed back to the uh, the to main the repository where that mm -hmm. thing lives. And so when somebody upgraded that one, it lost that fix, and I had to fix it again. I think for <laughs> one of the Zelda ROM hacks, I think so. There's there's one spot in there in the reset that I know pretty well because it keeps breaking. <laughs> but uh, you always have to go back to that leak. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I gotta, I, mean, I gotta make sure that anytime somebody touches the code that they didn't pull that fix out. So, Trinix says it's Legend of Link. Yeah, that one. Yep. And Mundandi asks us if uh, Mundandi, sorry, if there are any features or mappers that you guys would like to add to the core, the NES core, might even things like the Famicom PC that gave you facts about Mexico. He mentions. Um, at this point, uh, as far as mappers go, there aren't a lot more that are interesting to me. Mm. I wouldn't, I wouldn't probably, and, but part of it is just my thinking is mappers are actually really easy to write. Um, and it's a good, if anybody ever comes to me and says, what can I do to, to start learning? And I'm going to say, go find a game that, a uh, weird, <laughs> a weird, uh, Chinese or weird, ROM hack that doesn't work, that doesn't have the mapper in it. Go find one that you think might be interesting to play for five minutes and see if, and go write the mapper for it because it's really not that hard. You can, you can go look at the, uh, some of the existing ones to see how they work. You go look up the, most of them are documented on Nest Dev. With, and so you could just go in there and you kind of spend a little while looking at it and you could get started learning how to do it. So I, I kind of see the, a lot of the remaining mappers because they're mostly, um, for weird homebrew or ROM hacks or, or bootleg uh, multi-carts or, yeah. or things like that. I, I kind of see those as like almost saving them for somebody who wants to get started, you know, like, and, and because there's so many of them, I, I know I'd get burnt out if I tried to, to do too many more of them. Hmm. So the, as far as me personally, I probably have most of the ones that I want done. So I probably won't do too many more. I, I have uh, been, uh, working a little bit with um, MIDI stuff on it, though. Um, that was the thing I think that got me invited today was that uh, a couple of weeks ago I uh, uh, added MIDI support to the NSF player <laughs> on there. So you can now hook up a, any any MIDI player, keyboard, Yamaha, or the like the Miracle Piano that originally was intended to work with the NES. And you can go in there and play an NSF file so it'll play the actual NES music. And then on top of that... You can play the pulse channel and the triangle channel with the keyboard over the top of it. It's just a little project that I'd been threw together over a couple of weeks, and 
thought it was interesting. The, the reason that the Miracle Piano is interesting for, to me personally is, um, I don't know if you know who TMR is, the Mexican runner. Yeah, of course. Uh, his project a while back was to beat every single NES game that was licensed in the North America and, and Europe. And I was watching him do this for a while, and he was banging away on that Miracle Piano, which is the cart that lets you basically learns how to play the piano mm-hmm. and tracks what notes you hit and whatever. And there were two sections in that game where he couldn't beat him, no matter how perfectly <laughs> he played. And so later on, I uh, I started digging through the um, with an emulator. I started digging through the cartridge and running through it. I found those two specific sections, and I I actually figured out that. The game is broken in those two oh. sections. If you play them exactly right, you fail. There's, there's like two tricks you have to do. Like one of them, you have to, like there's a pause when it switches pages on these, on these. And if you play like the pause isn't there, like you play ahead of when it's telling you to play, at a constant rate, then you'll pass it on that one. And then on the other one, there's like some tied notes where you're supposed to hold it. But if you actually hold it, then you lose. You have to actually let go. On a couple of so those I, I dug into that and ever since then I've got a got a soft spot for the miracle piano so and and did you ever tell him um I I, I don't think so this, this I didn't figure it out until like a couple of years after he had finished so I watched him and then I, it had bugged me for a long time and <laughs> eventually I I dug into it with an emulator and then so when the mister came along I was like okay I got to make sure it supports the miracle piano that's awesome. Yeah. And how would they go to uh, to connect a Miracle Piano to it? It, it? So it actually connects through the um, controller port, mm-hmm. but the, the signals that are sitting there are pure MIDI. So nice. anything that, that's, um, that talks MIDI um, can work the same way. Like, the way that it's hooked up in the NES core on Mr. is any, like, you can take a Yamaha, a Yamaha keyboard, hook it up through the MIDI interface, and it'll send the commands over to the Miracle Piano cart, just like the normal Miracle Piano does. Works fine. It's awesome. I'll I'll be sure to to make that information reach the TMR. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> I, I don't know that he'd be interested in going back and trying. Those no, no. I, I guess he'll hate it, but uh, it'll be fun telling <laughs> That's him. That's kind of what I figured. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I'm not a personal friend of his, but I I, I know him, and uh, I know people that are friends of him, so I'll let him know. Yeah, uh, I just, so you can tell him though that it wasn't his fault he couldn't beat him. This yeah, that's the idea. That's the idea. Is the, the the game is broken in those two sections. Yeah, exactly. That's what I want to tell him, or or well, he 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 to get that information. And uh, going back, to, uh, Dave, to to the original question, is there stuff or features for PC Engine that you'd like to add to the course? Taking that same question from Moon Dandy. Uh, yes, sort of. Um, one thing I, because there was a there was a discussion on the boards um, a couple of weeks ago about uh, CD plus G that kind of sparked mm. my interest. So I'm I'm looking into it. Oh, that's that's one thing. Um, there there are some you know developer type things that probably wouldn't make it into the core, but I would use on my own. Uh, I'm always interested in in really weird peripherals and um, one again this wouldn't necessarily be a core thing but uh, one thing I'm also taking a quick peek at is I mentioned the uh, Devito book mm-hmm. earlier and how it's uh, 
it's got a CD-ROM and uh, it connects to a computer, but it used a COM port and an LPT port from, you know, that would have been would have been common on a a 1990s computer, but you can't find a computer that has those anymore. Um, so I was thinking of of making a little a little adapter that that does that over USB, and I think it's possible to do that so that you can. Uh, Write programs, download them directly into the uh, into the machine. Uh, one of the things it it also liked to do was uh, it had uh, MML, mm-hmm. which uh, maybe a lot of the people listening here don't know what that is, but it's it's a, a compilable music language, so you can write your own um, music that would play on the PSG. Uh, so Devilo is an interesting thing I'd, I'd like to do something with, but I don't know if it would be necessarily a Mr. thing. Yeah, I understand. Uh, one thing that comes up from time to time and becomes a discussion, um, some people want it, some people don't want it, is the fact that um, Herbo on, on uh, joypads... The way that it's handled in Mister, uh, it, it's based on a, a time-based generator in the in the uh, the system on a chip. It's not keyed off of how many scans of the joypad, mm-hmm. and uh, it would be an easy thing to do, but uh, it's kind of inconsistent with the Mister design. So that's something I every once in a while toy with. Should I try it? Should I not try it? And uh, Another thing I was talking about today, these are all little tiny things, but uh, I was I was talking with uh, Gitrinx and uh, Sorgalig about was the mouse, the PC Engine mouse um, has two buttons on its side. Mm-hmm. They are basically the run and the select button. The way that, that the core is currently implemented, you need to use your mouse and a pad, and that pad would would be your your run and select buttons, and the mouse would uh, would just be the buttons one and two. That it, that's not really how like that. That's a little bit inconvenient for a PC Engine game player, because uh, one of the things that you would do is maybe you would use a select button to switch back and forth between mouse and, and joypad, or on some games, or um, you really just want to press run to to move, and you don't want to switch controllers. Um, so right now, main Mister does not support um, the side buttons on the mouse, but uh, but it looks like we have a way forward on how that can take place. So as soon as that's built into the plumbing of the system, it's uh, it's a one-liner to uh, to put it into the PC Engine core. And uh, to segue that, uh, train expansions that the Miracle uh, works with the Snack and the USB MIDI. And uh, are there any adapters to connect PC Engine peripherals or controllers uh, to to Snack? Uh, yeah, well, that's that's the thing, right? There is a Snack adapter and a Snack um, connector, but the way that the that the uh, the joypad polling takes place on the PC Engine is different than many of the other systems. So most systems they uh, they do serial. Except for for Saturn, sort uh, for, for uh, sorry the uh, the uh, Sega systems. So like the uh, the Nintendo systems use a serial clocked mm-hmm. input 
um, and I believe it's about three microseconds per cycle, um, or maybe it's six microseconds per cycle. It's it's somewhere in there. So it's a relatively slow clock signal. Um, and for for Sega and Atari type joysticks, it's uh, it's a single scan or maybe a double scan where you scan it and then you flip a select bit, and then you you read in the uh, the the pulses after a brief pause. So on the PC Engine, that brief pause is, is very brief. Um, and there's quite a bit of flip this, flip that, read, flip. Um, so you end up having to, to get your, your signals transition in about a microsecond or less. And with Snack the way that it is, that's too fast. Hmm. So um, one of the things I, I was talking with Blue way back who designed this uh, the snack board that's out there, um, as I understand it? The um, he he said, "Oh, I tried it with a uh, with a buffer, and uh, and it works." But um, I, I just kind of redesigned it. I said, "Here's some level shifts and and buffer," and I I made a smaller board, and I put that out there. And a couple of people asked me if they could sell it. I said, "Sure, go ahead. Not not." Uh, not going to bother me at all. I think it'll make people happy to use it. So you would need that version of Snack mm. in order to use the mouse, in order to use the Memory Base 128, in order to use Turbo or Six Button on some controllers, and even the uh, the the Multi Tap. So it's it's pretty sensitive. I see. And regarding Snack, uh, Eric, do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, I love snack. Um, I, the, the idea of using original, um, hardware to, I, I want the, the Mr. Chorus to be replacements for the original as much as possible. Like there's no reason you'd ever want to use anything but it. Um, so personally, I know there's the, um, what you call it? The, the secondary SD card that's on there mm-hmm. and used by very much. I, I, if I were in charge, I'd be half tempted to try and co-op some of those <laughs> pins for a second snack port or something. But I understand the reasons for not doing that. But I, I, I love the idea of having uh, things be as close to the original as a replacement as you can get it. So you know, all you need is an SD extender, and you can pull those pins it's, out. It's, it's probably true. You, you would have to build your own cores to be able to do, to use it, which is a little bit of an annoyance. Um, but yeah. And uh, Behold asks, I lost tractor for a second. So, snack is too fast, basically, Dave? Like it creates signals that toggle too fast for Mr. to register? Um, so, to, to go into a little bit more detail, <laughs> the, the core, um, it, um, it will flip a signal, the select pin, and then it will read the response from the joypad. And this all needs to happen within less than a microsecond. Normally that's not too fast if you're using regular logic chips and so on, but on Snack, and I didn't say this the first time around, this is probably why there was some confusion. Um, the Snack port, because all of the wires can be mixed and matched and turn into inputs and turn into outputs, in order not to damage the board, they've all been defined as what we call open drain, which means it's either shorted to ground or it's floating. 
and when it's floating it needs a pull-up resistor so the pull-up resistor makes it high but there is a rise time and that rise time depends on how aggressive that resistor is and if that if that resistor is too aggressive then it actually pulls up the uh, the low signal above ground level and and makes it pulls it dangerously close to to high itself so the rise time on snack as it is makes it good to about 400 kilohertz um, but it needs to be more like one to two megahertz in, in order to function and uh, and you can do that with with um, with logic that knows which way the signals are going which is what i implemented the uh, the challenge though is that uh, you have to be very specific about your device you can't you can't just put a, a special snack board on and, and assume that it's going to work fine with any old uh, adapter at the end. Hmm. Thank you. So, and um, regarding uh, your, your own masters, uh, do you use them on LCDs? Do you use them on CRTs, Eric? Uh, currently, I've just got it hooked up to a, uh, an LCD monitor close because I'm usually using it to debug. Hmm. Um, and then and the monitor is close and convenient. Um, I like the um, the option of having it work on CRT. I'd be sad if that ever went away. Yeah, I love us. Um, not not only just for like light gun games, but I, I just I do like CRTs. I know that's not a universally held position within the Mister Dev community, but uh, I do like the the uh, old CRTs. I've got a couple of them here that I like and use. Dual output is is awesome. Yep. Yeah, I love the CRT output as well. And uh, of course, you can use the HDMI to, to PGA, well, HD15 DAX, right? And and that's another part uh, aside from the IO board. And and what about you, Dave? Well, I, uh, I only have one CRT in my house anymore. Mm. Um, it's near the mister. It's, <laughs> uh, it's a Commodore 1701, and it's composite or... Theoretically SVGA, but I've never used it because it doesn't have a normal SVGA mm, input. It's like Chroma and Luma. Yeah. So I, I drive an HDMI monitor, but um, I, I use the composite monitor for real hardware. Mm -hmm. But I, I do have a, um, a couple of composite uh, or composite um, adapters, but I've only got one of them to work. The one from Antonio Villena, I, I never got it to work. Um, but there was another one, the MAV stir that I got to work. But apparently, the gentleman is, you know, he he has batches come in and they go out, and then there's a big pause or uh, something going on. So I'm I'm really hoping that um, that there are more of them out there. That uh, so I know that there are a bunch of people who uh, who are looking and and are very interested in having them. I know that a couple of people are working on these as well. Yeah, it's. Uh... It's a very strange area uh, because composite is a very complicated signal, right? And generating yeah. it from from RGB is, is an interesting challenge, and and we can do that way better than it could be done back in today, as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, I mean, I don't I don't have an RGB monitor, so I kind of always wanted one, but uh, they've always been sort of out of my reach. Yeah, they've been they become quite popular nowadays. And well, in in this community. Yeah, yeah, of course. Of course, of course, <laughs> of, course. of course. They're they're unpopular with the people who uh, who made them available. 
Yeah, there are no options to get one new <laughs> from the shelf these days. Yeah. And uh, after that, uh, you, you moved to, to RM62 arcade hardware. Uh, I'm skipping Neo Geo, but this, this one I find interesting because you grabbed another arcade PCB, Eric. Um, that one was actually just a small fix. Um, I think it was Alan that was working on those, or somebody Alan was working with. Uh, I don't remember the specifics, um, but uh, yeah, there was a there was a color bug on there that I um, that had been sitting there for a while, where mm. everything was blue. Oh. Um, um, and uh, I think what that one turned out to be, there was a bug where after it had loaded all of the ROMs, it then loaded in dip switches. And it turns out that the dip switches were overwriting the color palettes a little bit. Wow. So all of the reds were being overwritten, and you could only get blues. So, like, a lot of those uh, 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 IRM62 games had color issues for a little while. Um, so that was just something that I worked on r relatively briefly. Hmm. Um, I, I guess the, the key point from that one is if you, there's something that you think that I might work on and you want me to work on it, I can tell you a couple of things that would help. For one, document that it, it works, um, that is different than the way it works on real hardware as thoroughly as you can. Uh, set up something that makes it super easy to reproduce, as if I know nothing about the game, which I typically won't. <laughs> um, and then, uh, so steps to reproduce it. Um, as early in the game and as uh, easily as possible. And uh, if you do stuff like that, um, then there's a higher possibility that it's something that I might work, I might look at. I think that's uh, true so. for every every bug on every <laughs> core. <laughs> and and also one more thing um, that also helps is decide that you that the thing that you want works on a good emulator. Oh. Um, I know that we that sometimes that gets talked about about how. FPGA people hate emulators, and I, I I can't say how wrong that is. I love emulators. Emulators are amazing, amazing tools for uh, development and. And research. a lot of times they're they're good to play on, depending on the yeah. type of game. They're 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 fantastic, and and but for debugging, they're so much easier than debugging with the uh, FPGA. And so having an emulator that you can compare to, that you can run things on and test things out on, is. It's so much easier to, to find fixes for bugs. So. And it's so hard to find emulators with good debuggers, right? Where you can just open the RAM and everything. Yeah. I, I noticed that earlier when uh, Dave was talking about his emulator that he was working on, that his mm -hmm. had a debugger, and that my ears perked up instantly. And it's like, oh, I might have used that one then if, it was, uh, <laughs> if I was doing this at the time, because it had a debugger. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It helps so much to just see everything plainly, right? I, yep. Yeah. When when I was coding the Super Nintendo version of the suite, uh, it, I, I I usually work with real hardware, but sending the data uh, to the flashcard sixteen well ten years ago, it, it some started to have uh, USB ports, but it's, it's it's easier or faster to cycle through software emulation for testing, right? Absolutely, it, it is. But uh, it stopped me on my tracks when I started started working on a faster cycle, working on an SNES emulator, and then I figured out that my code was no longer working on hardware. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, man, thank thankfully, uh, Higan came to the rescue. Well, BSNES at that time, but it, it was so much easier uh, to debug when it works properly, 
on a sovereign leader or whatever because it's not uh limited to to one area or the other but you need to when you're developing for one of these systems it helps so much to have a real hardware reference but yeah. it's hard it's hard and um what about neo geo we mentioned Fortech and his work on, on the pc engine uh, composite palette but what can you tell us about your involvement with the neo geo core yeah, so yeah, for tech, uh, I know you did the uh, the CPU, the 68K, and you had your Tego do the, the audio. The, the, the audio is kind of funny because it's it's written, I think, in a way that matches the hardware. Very specifically, it uses pipelining, and that's super confusing to, to read through, which means that nobody wants to look at it. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's hard to find bugs in it because the, the logic is confusing. You have to keep track of several things in your in your mind at the same time, and it's 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 that way because I'm pretty sure because that's the way the actual hardware works and that makes it easier to make it more accurate. But it's super confusing to look through. Um, and so um, I, I know when when they were first uh, when Vertex Core first was coming out, there were a lot of audio bugs and nobody wanted to look at it at all. So that, that's kind of the other thing that that sometimes might motivate me to get to look at something is if it's been sitting there for a while and nobody else wants to, eh, maybe I'll take a look. If it's not too hard, I'll I'll, I'll try it. And so. Um, because I had done that back when, there's been a couple of bugs that have been sitting there for a long time, and periodically, uh, some, I think recently somebody gave um, some updated documentation on one of the bugs. Is the, there was this audio warble that's, that, that was happening on it. Mm -hmm. and because I had looked through the code before on the audio, I kind of had a rough idea of what might be the problem. And so if you think about how the, the, they would describe this problem, they'd say that the audio sounds drunk or <laughs> that it sounds like it's kind of inconsistently moving in pitch. And to me, that uh, just based on that description, what I'm going to be looking for, for to fix the bug is something where uh, you have an inconsistent delay. And having looked through most of the code in the, in the actual sound generation chip that, that's there, there's not too much wrong that can, that can happen with inconsistent delays. It'll generally, if there's a bug there, it's usually going to be something like the audio will run slow consistently, or it'll run fast consistently, or it'll be a certain pitch wrong all the time. You don't expect it to be something where the it varies. And so, my first thought was I had I knew that there was some code in there for handling the way that the um, the way that we're retrieving samples um, because of how much throughput the Neo Geo Core has. As far as memory, I mean, it, it accesses huge amounts of memory all the time. That required us to put the audio stuff in the DDR. Wow. And DDR can have variable um, response times. Uh, and so the, the first thing that I'm looking at is, is, is I know there's a delay there. Um, is that the problem? That's the first thing I'm going to go check. And so I, start, <laughs> I started uh, trying to write out this thing where I could cache the sample that where it sounded especially bad to me, where I could actually hear it. That was, again, one of the things where somebody had, had produced a sample that I could hear very clearly was wrong. Mm. So I said, oh, okay, I'll take a look. And so I was thinking, oh, I'll go, I'll go cache this. And then I, I mentioned to Katrinx that I thought this might be it. And she said, just, uh, she just went ahead and built a version where you just ignored the, um, the delay on the DDR and just played whatever was there no matter what. And it sounds normal. Mm. So it's like, okay, yeah, that's the problem. And then so what I, um, what I tried to do after that was then I noticed that the delay, it was constantly delaying the chip. 
as soon as it, the, the a next sample was requested, whether or not the um, it needed the results of that sample right away. So I went in there and dug through the pipelining code to say, okay, request it here. It doesn't actually need the sample back so where it can store it in the pipeline for a few cycles later. So you don't have to delay it right away. And so I went and added in some extra codes so that it doesn't delay it right away. It waits until it actually needs it. If you do that, it, the, the warble goes away. So after somebody went through and, and actually made some very specific examples that I could reproduce, it took a day to fix. And this has been sitting there for a couple of years, <laughs> a year and a half, broken. And, and it's interesting because uh, the, the issue was not the, the implementation, it was the Mistress-specific architecture, right? And, and not, yeah, even so the, the, not even the, the Neo Geo itself. No, no. Nothing wrong with the actual code. It's, it's, um, the basis of the problem is that there's a limitation of the RAM access when using the DDR, specific to using it on Mr. And you can overcome that if you look really closely at when you actually mm. need to get the data and adjust delays so that it can get there in time. Yeah. And, and that's kind of a... Um, uh, things like that with the memory are kind of the biggest... Um, uh, what's the word? Limitation. The biggest limitation of, of Mr. I know that the... Um, for example, the, the GBA core um, has a couple of operations that it can't complete in time based on the memory. Um, but the solution there that, F, that um, FPGA Basms um, put in was that he counts how long it's late and then he makes it up for it almost immediately afterwards. So it never gets more than just a teeny bit out of phase. And the actual implementation of there is perfectly correct if you ever move to hardware that has more memory. So the, the actual preserved core is perfect. It's just there's a slight deviation there to make it work on Mr. And, and for, in this particular case, for the Neo Geo, it's, it's not even... It doesn't even have to go out of sync. It just needed a, little, um, needed a little more care to make sure that it would fit. And then it doesn't need to do stuff like that. But I, again, I think that the, the reason that we have save states might have something to do with the fact that he added in this thing where you could adjust it, you know, save it a little bit. You're waiting for the signal to come, and then you could jump it, and then it could speed up for a little bit. I think that might have kicked off the reason why that core has safe states a little bit. I could be wrong. But. Hmm. Could be. Well, I think you got lucky with with that uh, that bug fix, though. Honestly. Yeah, yeah. That one. That one was. That one was lucky. The. Um. It's interesting because. Um. The other thing that I've been working on now is there's also another bug that I think is the oldest one in that in the github issues list for it is there's this broken bs and breakers revenge where it's missing a couple of sprites and so both this audio thing and the the um this this versus bug i started looking at mainly in preparation for this because i wanted something i could talk about <laughs> so don't don't think that you can always if you've got bugs that you want you can't just invite me onto a program to get me to fix more things but it worked <laughs> this time um but anyway the, this uh, this versus bug, I've actually I have narrowed it down. I'm pretty sure that the issue is related to the um, the way that it's handling the last two sprites that it can process on a scan line. The um, um, if you look at um, signal tap and you draw out all the signals of what it's doing at the end of the scan line, you'll see that the um, the the last two the sprites that are missing are actually being read, and they're they have the correct data in them. But the, the code that pushes them onto the line buffer that it uses 
um, has already switched to the next line. And so the, the reason it's not working is because the um, I, either <laughs> the um, the reading from the the 95th and 95th 95th and 96th sprite is happening too late, or the um, the code to push on the onto the line buffer is switching over too soon. And so now I'm in one of these situations, so just like we've talked about before, where um, I don't know what the real hardware does. So I mm-hmm. I've got code that fixes it, but I don't know that I'm fixing it the right way. And so I'm hesitant to touch this code that I know has been worked out from uh, um, cap chips, and then I'm going to mess it up if I try and fix it the wrong way. And I don't I'm scared to do it. So and I I, have, I, I know why people do that. I know I know that you 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 know the best of intentions. I always wish that when emulators authors make the those choices that they would document it. I'm not sure that this is the way that it should be, but I'm going to do it this way anyway. Yeah. In this case, I even have this, like, uh, Furtech has shown me where the schematics are. I can't find it. I know it's got to be there somewhere because I can tell that the signals are how they should be, but I, I, I can't find it. I don't, I don't know what to do with it. So <laughs> maybe I'll, uh, I, I could probably post a work in progress in the test channel if anybody wanted to try it, but uh, I'm, you, I'm disappointed you... in this one. If so I got lucky a... with the audio one, and this one I spent a couple of weeks since I kn- since and still haven't been able to figure it correctly. If you had a console and a logic state analyzer, would you would it be possible to determine which of those two behaviors is correct? I think it absolutely would be, and and even then it would probably help to if you did that, you could probably then go look at the schematics from the decap and say it's got to be right here, and then somebody who looked at that would maybe see it where I'm missing it. But yeah, a capture would easier, would point you to the correct place in the schematics easier. Well, I got to say, it's so much better now than it used to be for the price of, of test equipment. Yeah, it certainly is. Because we can go, I, I'm, I'm usually trying to, to help. I, I, I know that I owe one such measurement to Ace. I know it, I will do it, sorry. But that's the kind of work that we, if possible, need to do because test equipment is more accessible than ever. Yeah, I got myself a uh, a 32-line logic analyzer recently. I'm going to make some use of it. I'm going to see if I can figure out whether the PCFX is uh, is what I think it is. Awesome. Or what we, what we think it is in emulation, at least. Let me know if I can help. You know, it occurs to me that the DE10 Nano with some level shifters would make it an outstanding logic analyzer. It it would be impressive to have a core for that because so many people could help. I know that there's the other side of the user or, or contributor having the original hardware, but it would make such a good bridge. It's funny you should say that. I I um I actually gave some thought to it's not exactly the same, but um I was going to uh, set up something with level shifters on the back of the uh, PC engine and feed it into a DE10 Nano so I could do some timing in exactly that same way. It's uh, it's really cool because you've got a, a, a big amount of uh, DDR3 memory in there to, uh, to hold your traces. Um, you could even, uh, you know, at a starter point, you could, you could send them to signal tap if you wanted. Yeah. <clears throat> All sorts of cool bits. 
Yeah, it's it's so much better. Uh, and and Trainix says that uh, SRG three twenty uses the D ten nano to do all his logic captures of real hardware. Awesome. And uh, Retropress asks us if uh, regarding that uh, miracle uh, piano bug, if it's only in the NES game or it's if there's a chance that it also affects the Super Nintendo version. Uh, you know, I'm actually not sure the. I know the song list isn't identical between the NES, the Super Nintendo, the Genesis, the Amiga, or the PC. I think they're all slightly different uh, song lists. I don't know if the same songs are there. And even if it's there, I don't know if it, uh, it happens in the same way. Hmm. I, I could certainly find out. Um, and, and actually, the, the, the code that's there for the NES could very easily be moved to the Super Nintendo, Super Nintendo and the Genesis if anybody felt like trying it. It's... it's Super Nintendo in particular is almost the exact same. You just have to change a couple of constants for different clock rates, and it should just start working. But I haven't actually tried the Super Nintendo to know if it's if it's the same or not with, so, with that bug. So you can usually make uh, so you can literally make DLC packs for the other games. Yeah, yeah, you could. I, I I assume that they're in the same format between them, but I haven't checked that. Yeah, most probably. And I actually I have. Um, like I said, I kind of got addicted to the Miracle Piano, so I bought one, and it came with a whole bunch of of add-on songs for the PC. I should probably look to get those dumped somehow. They're on old floppies that are probably dying. Hmm. Um. If, if do you have hardware to read those? Um, I'm not sure. I did at one point, but uh, they're. I'm not sure that those hard, those floppy drives still work or not. They're, they're pretty old, and I haven't turned them on in a long time. Uh, they probably. Do I? I don't know. I I know people think that they are fragile, but in my experience, they are so resilent. And uh, if you don't have a way to use those floppy drives, uh, you can use a Pauline that uh, attaches to the D10 Nano, and you can do flux dumps with them. It's still not uh, ready for for uh, general consumption, I believe, but it's getting there fast. Hmm. Really looking forward to that. I am. Yes, I am. Uh, usually I, I use uh, the other solutions that are in the market, and they are pretty good. And I hope Pauline can surpass them. I hope. Yes, it's. Uh, I know I've been hearing about that from uh, Joseph Redon of the, mm, uh, the no. Video Game Preservation. Yeah, and, from, from uh, Japan. Yeah, and uh, it really looks promising. I just I would like more information. Yeah, I probably will get one. We're we're getting off topic, but I'll probably get one since I work a lot on on next sixty eight thousand dumps. And um, well, uh, regarding uh, game habits, I already asked you a bit about playing on, on current platforms. But do you guys play on current platforms? What are your thoughts on on the current state of the industry, Eric? Um, um. Well, I did, uh, did we already mention this, that I had, I used to work on Nintendo until a little bit. I don't know if that's, uh, that's the transition layer that sits between, or that you can play GameCube games on the Wii and the Wii U. Mm -hmm. I worked on that for a little while, um, and so it's kind of roughly where I stopped playing most recent consoles. I, don't, I have a Wii U, but I don't have anything more recent than that, so the most recent game that I've played is probably Breath of the Wild, Zelda mm -hmm. again. Oh, it's a great game. Yep. And I, I don't have anything against newer games, especially like, um, I, and obviously the, the retro 
style um, indie games, I, I tend to like those as mm-hmm, well. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I, I tend to gravitate more to the, towards the older ones than the new ones. And it's great that we are getting so much homebrew. And what about you, Dave? Uh, well, you know, I'm basically a, a 2D guy. So I, you know, I, I kind of ignored uh, the PlayStation and the Sega Saturn in their lifetime, but mm. uh, I've become interested in the Saturn mm-hmm. since then. Um, I did have a GameCube, and that's kind of grown on me, but I don't play it a lot. A um, couple of the handheld systems, Game Boy Advance, uh, uh, NDS. But um, PCs, not really. Just the the only things I, I think I've ever played on a PC since then have been Super Meat Boy, um, uh, the Cave Story, and uh, Falcom stuff. Hmm. Falcom stuff, yeah. Yeah, I mean, 2D is, is, is really where I am. The whole... The 90s was 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 magical, I think. You know, we had we had at the same time video games evolving and j-pop turning from something crappy with with idol singers into into you know actual music and pretty good stuff too um and we had anime happening all at the same time and and toward the second half of the decade you you saw all three influences you know on each other at least in japanese gaming um, and that's that's where that's what what touches me. Um, the American stuff, not so much. Although, you know, Doom and Quake and stuff like that were very interesting. I I don't think I really have such a connection with FPS hmm. or anything like that. Yeah, I, I I follow you in that last part completely. It's it's simply I'm not good at them, and and I'm not I'm I'm not into them. Yeah, I, I thought they were really cool at the beginning, and then when it just kept going, I thought, "Well, this is actually getting not some not so interesting to me." Yeah, I understand. I mean, anybody could tell us that two D is the same way, right? But we are simply into two D, and you yeah, you'd you rather know, get Cleopatra's course. Yeah, that's that's a that's a great way of putting it. And um, regarding physical and, and original media. What are your thoughts on that? Did you still get your homebrew or, or old games in, in physical format? How do you feel about that? Me? Yeah. Uh, I mean, uh, you may or may not know this. I think you know this about me, but the audience probably may not. I For, for the PC Engine, I, I collected pretty much every game that was ever produced and, and is still produced. So, um, original media. I don't... I don't care um, to play it on the original media, but uh, to have the original as as a you know you've got the manual and you've got the the artwork and and uh, especially with the Japanese games, there were lots of pack pack ins and maps and and hint books and and things like that. Um, but you know, just as a as an artifact, as a as a and as a definitive source. Hmm, that's exactly what I thought. I, I was going to add that because it's the definitive reference while you keep it working. Uh, and, and you can keep stuff working. It's just like Theseus' uh, paradox. You can just replace parts and keep it working. But it, it if, if you're uh, 
careful about it. It's it's a reference for the future, for having a proper way of how it should work from now onwards, right? That's right. And I say a definitive source, not the definitive yeah. source, because um, there were many different repressings of some of these games. Mm -hmm. Not all of them were re ever repressed, but for example, Tokimeki Memorial went through at least seven iterations because of all the different bugs and, and things that were were uh, fixed and i i don't have i do have i knew that there were several versions and i have a couple of them but i don't have all of them and i've completely lost interest in obtaining them <laughs> do you know of any hue card games that have revisions um that's a good question not really i do know a couple that were prone to decay hmm. Um, Bonk's Adventure 2 and mm -hmm. uh, its Japanese counterpart. Those are probably the worst offenders. Yeah. Um, there, there was one, I think the original game, the Kung Fu, was originally pressed wrong or, or burned wrong and it didn't actually run. So um, the, the story I read recently was that they, they drilled a hole in the card to, to, uh, to mark that it was... Uh, <laughs> either non-functional or it had some big bug and they, they, they had to repress the entire run. Wow. And what about you, Eric? Do you have any thoughts on this subject? <laughs> um, number one, I blame TMR a little bit. I went a little nuts after watching him beating all those games, so I started collecting <laughs> a little bit uh, back then. So I've probably got a, about half of the, maybe a little more than half of the North American NES library on cart. What, what year was none, this? None of the, uh, sorry? What, what year was this? Oh, when was TMR doing this? Uh, it, it took ten, him, what, three eight, years or yeah. something to, to go through all of them? And... So it's like eight years or nine years ago? I don't know. Oh, it was in, in this century? I don't think it was century. quite that long ago. It, yeah, it was, it's fairly recent that he did this. And he, he did it on a mixture of emulators and... On hardware, uh, yeah. On hardware and Oh, that's got to be expensive. <laughs> he now probably has pretty close to a complete collection at this point, but at the time he was using whatever he could. Uh, uh, but I'll tell you, I, I if I was started in in that year, I would not be anywhere close to that on PC Engine, and I would have given up. Yeah, it was I, easier. <laughs> I I took a trip, my first trip ever to Japan in 1997, and uh, I met up with some friends, and they were saying, "Oh, look at this! It's it's on discount here. You'd have games in the 100 yen box." You know, uh, my average game cost was like 700 yen at that time. I came home with like 250 of them. Yeah, mm. that's awesome. So I, I've got a hard limit on how much I spent even throughout that time where I was collecting them a little bit. So I don't have any of the, the super expensive ones. Mm. Um, but I've got more than I used to, or more than I intend to. And, and at this point, I probably wouldn't mind getting rid of them. I don't, I don't think I need them. And... Especially for ones where you can get the game legally mm, mm -hmm. in a collection, you can buy or... the ROM. Then, I, then I, I don't have any qualms about needing to keep the original one. And, and so, as long as the mapper is well known, right? That's right. That's right. It, it is kind of nice that I can, I can go compare with the real one if I need to for some of them. But I don't have any truly expensive ones. It, it's funny. My my most expensive game is actually a box. <laughs> <laughs> not not for the NES. <laughs> I I uh, scale I rarely throw away boxes and so i've got a, a semi-rare box that i have no intention of keeping but haven't sold yet 
<laughs> yeah, we'll stand on different areas in, in, in this, but it's kind of part of uh, the mystique uh, around uh, this. We are uh, in the three-hour mark. I, I'm loving having you here, but I know that you might have other stuff to do. I don't have a problem if, if, uh, if, if there's still stuff to talk about. And, and what about you, Eric? Uh, yeah, I can, I can stay for a little longer if we've got something to talk about. Well, um, uh, would, you, would you want to bring any other topic to, to the table? Uh, I don't know. What about you, Dave? Well, um, I mean, the only, the only thing that, um, that comes to mind is, is not exactly Mr. Related, but uh, I've been doing a bunch of stuff on, um, with electronics lately. Mm-hmm. Kind of bridging the gap and, and uh, getting into the world with where, where I can probe the original machines. And that's, uh, that's really interesting. I don't know uh, if, if that's something that, yeah. uh, that you guys are doing. Oh, here we got another question. Yeah. What upcoming things in Mr. are you looking forward to? Well, obviously, I'm looking forward to the Saturn core, uh, if and when. I mean, I don't know that it's possible yet, but it, it is looking very good. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, one day, I'd like to be able to to uh, to put together like a uh, an arcade core, but that's more of a, a time commitment than I can really invest at the moment. Something like Targ, Spectar, that kind of a thing. Mm. Those old Exidy games. Probably a lot of people in the audience don't know what I'm talking about. Probably, but uh, they can look it up. Yeah, nineteen nineteen eighty ish. That was that was sort of the magical era when, when uh, Space Invaders, being mostly black and white, became something with uh, with a limited number of colors. But they they came up with all sorts of really interesting uh, other patterns. Yeah, yeah. I recall how early games started have using synths, and that was that's an interesting era. Yeah, exactly. Of course, it was also difficult because they they used a lot of analog circuitry. Yeah, timers. Yeah, yeah, and uh, just resistors and and capacitors to change the the, the pitch, right? Yeah, and the AY three eighty nine ten. Yeah, love that one. The basis for <laughs> for everything <laughs> after that. Yeah. How about you, Eric? What you looking um, forward to? Likewise, I, the Saturn. I, I don't have any experience with the Saturn really at all, so it'll be interesting to play around with it a little bit. No. Oh. Um, as far as things that I might want to work on, I I don't know. The, I try not to talk about what I want to work on because then I don't. I, yeah, you can create expectations, something. and yeah. then it's no longer fun if people expect it. So, I mean, like for example, the the speech synthesizer for the TI ninety nine. I was working on that for a good year, off and on, and I would have felt annoyed if I had to, if I felt pressured to get it done at any time. So. Yeah, that's that's an interesting point that to touch on because once you announce you're working on something, it becomes work instead of a hobby. Yep. Yeah, I know there's I think, people that can do that, but it's hard for me. Sorry, Dave. Well, I think it's it's more a question of of, um, of when people start asking about it, right? I mean, if you if you say it and nobody asks about it and then you're done, <laughs> I mean, you've done it in your own pace. But if, if people start asking about it, then then that's it's a it's a subtle pressure, uh, and and probably neither side is is conscious of it, but it, it's there. Yeah, and also it could be demoralizing, right? If you announce it and nobody cares, 
Uh, I mean, it's for you mainly. Okay. Yeah, it, it doesn't. It doesn't get to me, but you know, <laughs> like I say, I do this for me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, which is a good part, right? Uh, and and when you believe that you what you're doing, besides your own uh, intentions, or, or it it can help somebody else out there, even if they don't know it. Oh yeah, for sure. I'm actually really surprised at how many people, uh, you know, give me likes on my tweets. Right, I I just <laughs> pop it out there to let people know. But hey, people people do seem interested. So hey, that's that's good. And um, Trinix asks, uh, Dave, how do you feel about the PCFX? It has a reputation as kind of a niche interest, but are there things about it you find underappreciated? Yeah, it's uh, a lot of complex feelings about PCFX. <laughs> um, I have a couple of them here and, a, and an FXGA, and I always intended to play them. And th the truth is I probably, over the course of 20 years, I probably turned it on for about an hour. Hmm. Um, but you know, it's, it's, I've, I've always intended to, uh, <laughs> it's a, it's a very Japanese system. And, um, the thing is that with, with, um, the evolution of games on CD in that era, they went heavy on the text and, uh, and Japanese is an opaque language. And I started learning it because of the PC engine um, a little over 10 years ago, and it's still hard, mm -hmm. but I can get through, I can get through a number of games, uh, but not all games. And especially PCFX is aimed at an older audience, so they would be more opaque. Um, I, I think it, it, it's difficult, uh, <laughs> difficult system. Do you have many games for the PCFX? I have the whole set. There's not oh, that many for them. Wow. I have six. <laughs> so, yeah, because but, that's... But again, yeah, yeah I mean, my, my interest on, on the PCFX, I think, um, is... Like, I, I, I want to translate some games on that. Mm. I, I, I did a couple of, uh, of PC Engine games, but really trivial, trivial ones. Um, I think one or maybe two games have been translated on PCFX. Mm -hmm. Yeah, um, do Fire Woman Motoigumi, please. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I was thinking Zenki might be a little easier. Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> and I don't have that one. So it becomes yeah. so expensive in the, in the last decade. Yeah, it's so crazy walking around Akihabara and looking in the glass case and seeing it's like 700 bucks. Yeah, yeah, it's crazy. But, but um, yeah, I mean, they're Team Innocent. Come on, that one. Team, yeah, maybe. Like I, I, I see the PCFX as as being a viable competitor to about five percent of the Saturn's uh, <laughs> collection. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, that's that's why I think Saturn is more interesting than PCFX. But PCFX is interesting because it's the undiscovered country. Yeah, yeah. You know, I wanted to do a version of the two for EP test suite for PSFX when I what what one because I I found that SDK by Trap Fifteen. Oh. Well, oh. you know, I I I, I got to get this PC this FXGA out to you somehow. Um, you'll get the uh, the dev kit at least. Uh, you might 
need a PC98 to go with it. But. Uh, I do have a PC98 laptop, but that's it. So no, oh. no, no good. <laughs> no desktop, eh? No, no desktop. We'll see. I, I, I thought if anybody had one, you it would be you. I know. I only have. I am in love with the PC88, but, but I, 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 it's so hard to get a PC98 without going to Japan and yeah. the pandemic and everything and money and costs. Impossible. Yeah. You you ever gotten into something like that obscure Japanese platforms, Eric? Obscure Japanese platforms. Um, don't think so. No. Hmm. I, uh, my, uh, path was mainly, so if you start on that TV scoreboard pong thingy that we had, then went to yeah, 99 NES. Uh, we had a Commodore 128 after that. Mm -hmm. And then regular PC. And I think I had a then like a Game Boy Advance at some point. So I, I didn't never have a Super Nintendo or a Genesis growing up. Mm. Um, or a TurboGrafx uh, PC Engine. Uh, uh, so those were kind of what I grew up and PlayStation. We we got a PlayStation, so that was yes. kind of my my path. And not a lot of those had um, uh, Japanese games that I can recall. Most of it was just the stuff that was. Well, for the NES, it was stuff that was at the the local thing that you could rent for free for a buck fifty for a weekend. Hmm. That was those were a but that, super cheap rental place. That's great because you have a lot of stuff to explore. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if if you some if you someday feel such inclined, and Trix asks if if you get any course that you'd like to make from from scratch. Uh, from scratch, I worry that I'm too lazy for that. Yeah, I. <laughs> it, it takes a, um a long time to write one of those from scratch, so it's a it's a pretty significant time commitment. I think I'm better suited uh, looking for bugs that I can identify mm. and maybe fix or. I fully understand. You. I had I had actually considered doing the Intellivision until I saw um, Grabulasari had his uh, Doherty had started one, and so I had considered doing that one just because it looked like it was small and needed. It seems like we we needed that one in Mister, so I'm glad that that one did show up. So I didn't I didn't have to do it. <laughs> <laughs> Trinix says that the world could use more Mega Duck. <laughs> And, uh, I've still never seen a Mega Duck game run. <laughs> I, I, I admit that. I don't know proudly or humbly or what, but I, I admit it. I don't think I've seen a Mega Duck game run. Yeah, but I understand you. I, I follow you. I, I, I kind of feel the same way that I have something that I do that gets some stuff documented, and it's hard to move away from that path because you see that there are not many much people doing that same kind of thing, and you're feeling a small void, right? Yeah. Somebody's got to fix the bugs. Yeah. yeah. And, and I feel like that's uh, one of the things um, people like uh, that write the cores, some of them like work on them forever, but others of them, I think, put it out there and kind of hope that somebody will make them better. I, I, mm -hmm. I, I kind of hope that, people, that some of the original authors are kind of glad that people are still working on them. I hope that's true. And I can see that why, why that's fun for them, right? Because it's creating something and and polishing it for somebody else, different profiles. 
uh, Sector asks, if you could meet the engineers of the original hardware, what would you ask them? Can I have the schematics? <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's about it. Oh, yeah. And, and maybe, maybe I would ask them about intentions. Because mm -hmm. there's uh, so much thing that, okay, we have the original hardware as, uh, as a reference, but you don't know if stuff has decayed. You don't know if the proper palette was a composite one. You don't know. You, you can measure it and you can tell that that was the result, but the intention, because with Mystery, you can enhance things, right? Like have more sprites per line on the NES core or the PC engine or the Genesis or whatever. But intentions would be nice because uh, was this intended to be seen on a composite display, RGB? We know that they jumped between those and, and uh, also about pixel aspect ratios and circles and how they are supposed to look. We have the approximations to the proper ones. But still, uh, knowing from the original designers what was the intention would be cool. Yeah, it's... it's uh... I think it wouldn't be the form of a question. It would be more like a, a big, long conversation. Yeah. <laughs> what color is the sky? <laughs> Says sentence <Yeah>. 6. <laughs> <laughs> are there two bland bands of blue, or are there three? Yeah. <laughs> what was the intention again? <laughs> yeah. So, um, well, I... I've been having a great time, guys. Uh, I don't know about you. Uh, any more topics that the audience wants to ask or uh, anything that you want to mention? Uh, social networks or, or projects or where can they follow you and support you in, in such uh, scenarios if, if, if you consider those? Well, um, I'm, I'm on Twitter. That's about it. <laughs> I, I don't. I don't do any of the, the Facebook stuff or anything like that. What, what is my handle again? I've forgotten. <laughs> David uh, underscore. Uh, yes, it's Shadoff underscore D. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> I always get mixed up and and let out to complete do the work. Yeah, and uh, oh, and I think something to watch out for over the next little while is is uh, Raspberry Pi has come out with a. Uh, a microcontroller called the RP2040. Mm, oh yeah. And uh, this thing is kind of the best of FPA, FPGA and the best of, of uh, computing at the same time. You, you can have these little PIO, pro programmable IO state machines that, uh, that can oscillate at like 130 megahertz. And you can write a program that executes every cycle, uh, an instruction that can actually output you know something on on the uh, on the uh, PIOs, um, the I/O lines every cycle. So they've actually written uh, emulators that modulate the VGA hmm. all on the same chip. So it's it's like yeah, you you just have a resistor network on the output, and and it's all one chip, and that chip is about a dollar. Wow. So this is maybe not the future, but it is a future. Uh, I see in, in the immediate future, this is going to have a lot of use in uh, I.O. devices, uh, controllers, things like that, um, adjunct as opposed to, uh, you know, core of, 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 a, of a machine. But uh, it shouldn't be too long before this stuff really starts gaining traction. Nice. 
Arisen8887 asks if there has a clock speed ever been a limiting factor on mystery. Uh, I think you get close to it on like the AO486. Um, that one's kind of a special case just because it's a uh, um, kind of a moving target. You always mm. want to see if you can maybe do a little more performance that you can squeeze out of it because you know, because 486 isn't really a definitive hard target and you could, there's different things that you could aim for there. Um, I don't know that that's exactly clock speed so much as it is um, just running out of resources to hold everything at the same time, but, but they're semi-related. Mm -hmm. If the clock speed was a little higher, you could probably push a few more things closer to the limit of what the, uh, of how many resources you have on the chip, but I don't think for the current stuff that it's it's a limit too much. Okay. Clock speed is related to the timing, and the timing is related to the program structure and, and the amount of resources in use and a bunch of other things. So timing closure is a big subject that I wish I knew more about. Yeah, getting the, getting the thing to actually close is hard, but I don't think it's a limit of the D10 nano for any of the cores that exist. I see. And uh, where can they reach you, uh, Eric, if, if they are Oh, I'm, I hang out in the Mr. Discord uh, at me. I'll usually notice it. Um, that's, that's about it. Oh, great. Well, any any closing comments? Uh, it's been a pleasure uh, talking with you. It's It's been super entertaining. And I bet that we could, uh, if we throw stuff at the table, we can keep on talking. But... Um, I think we have to to close this episode. And any any closing comments or stuff that you want to talk about? Oh, well, for me, I, I'm thinking uh, just play games, enjoy, <laughs> um, and uh, don't send me too many bug reports. But when you do, if you find a bug, please please give me as much information as can possibly exist. <laughs> and and a, uh, like a save game if you got one. Eric, I would say those exact words. Make, <laughs> if, you're, if you've got bugs, take them as thorough as you can, with much information. Make them tell us how to reproduce it as easily as you can, and you're more likely to get somebody to look at it that way. Excellent. Well, actually, actually, there was there was one more thing. There was um, somebody was talking. And I've heard there's a there's a whole area of uh, of research on this. A bunch of people, speedrunners like to. To try and create these devices to capture their uh, their inputs. joypad, yeah, yeah, their inputs, so that they can be replayed. And I think there's some merit to that. Um, there was a little discussion that started on the on the forum, so it might be something that we might want to uh, to look into at some point. Sounds interesting. Are you talking about like tool assisted speedruns? Uh, yeah, but I mean, if if uh, if somebody was able to give you a the test. Yeah, the, the inputs here, just run these inputs uh, through your, your virtual controller and you will see the bug, right? That's pretty much kind of what a, uh, the tool-assisted speedruns okay, files yeah. are like. Mm -hmm. and, and in fact, they kind of already work on the NES core. Nice. Just uh, Drinks did that a while back. Cool. That doesn't exist for all of them. Yeah. It, it it sure doesn't exist for the PC Engine. Nudge, nudge, wink, wink. <laughs> there you have it. So, well, uh, thank you all for, for listening. And uh, thank you, too, for uh, the time and, and for being such great uh, guests. 
having so many topics and of course for all the work you do for the community and for mister thank you very much well thanks for having us it's been a great pleasure thank you so much it has been fun thank you okay take care bye bye